Greetings, welcome, bienvenidos, hola, aloha, nihao, namaste, konnichiwa, bonjour, bonjourno, sorodi karab, guten tak, ciao, wivi, vakat, bang, half a day, jai janendra, salam, shalom, peace, now, go vegan, peace, how? Go vegan from the new right left coast of the genetically mutated McNugget Farm Asuta Kill Vivisection Prison Killitary Industrial Corpor Nation in the cheese covered post constitutional bankster bankrupt corruptocracy, mocracy, criminocracy, unchallenged by meaty, uh, meaty. Food born in the NSA, NRA, CIA, USA, home of Uncle Sam Manella, where they sure do eat a lot of dead animal body parts, and the Wall Street-backed corporate diet of death, disease, and destruction is shoved down your throat. This is Go Vegan Radio with Bob Linden, sponsored today by Health IQ, an insurance company that helps health-conscious people like runners, cyclists, weightlifters, yogis, and yes, vegans get lower rates on their life insurance. Uh, go to healthiq.com slash GVR, as in Go Vegan Radio, Health IQ dot com slash gvr to support the show and see if you qualify and uh i thought maybe uh during the course of the health iq sponsorship here we'd we'd uh maybe see maybe what's your vegan health iq and you can take the quiz on the website healthiq.com slash radio. But I thought today, maybe I'd just ask you a couple of questions and then hopefully remember later in the program to give you the answers. But let's see. Um, let's see if you know, if you know these, uh, these answers here. So who has the lowest risk of type 2 diabetes? Um, meat eaters, semi-vegetarians, pesco-vegetarians, lacto-ovo-vegetarians, or vegans. Now, I'm using some strange terminology because, of course, I don't really <laughs> consider anybody a vegetarian um, who uh, consumes animal products, and you know, although a lot of people seem to consider uh, the uh, egg and dairy people as vegetarians, I don't, but... You know, so but but this is um, these are this is nomenclature from an actual diabetes uh, journal. Uh, so okay, we'll we'll go along with that. So um, who has the lowest uh, risk for type two diabetes? That was quiz question number one, and then quiz question number two is how much lower is the risk of type two diabetes? for vegans. Again, with a little luck, I will remember to have the answers uh, to those quiz questions later in the program. Coming up on today's program, we will catch up with Will Tuttle, author of the number one Amazon bestseller, The World Peace Diet. Will has been uh, around the world uh, with The World Peace Diet, and we will talk to him about his adventures, his vegan Adventures uh, including travel to India and to China. And also today, finally, I mean, a while back, I promised you mind-blowing climate change revelations. And then I thought, you know, a mind is a terrible thing to blow. Um, and uh, 
you know, I have to, I have to blow minds responsibly here. At, uh, you know, just um, I was feeling maybe it would, it would have been just too much for you back then. But I feel all right. You should be ready by now uh, to have your mind blown. Um, so that's the reasoning. Or is it uh, that we finally found the file and we got rid of eight minutes of hilarious but annoying technical problems? I mean, I, I, I couldn't subject you to that. I mean, three people and none of us could hear anyone else. And, uh, was, you know, all recorded uh, and pretty funny, but inappropriate concerning climate change revelations. So anyway, um, our interview coming up today with environmentalist vegan Mike Hudak, guaranteed to blow your mind. But don't we do that uh, every week here on Go Vegan Radio with Bob Linden? And we've been doing it now for 17 years. Well, we, we started in January of 2001. Uh, this here first vegan radio show ever in the USA, ever in commercial media. Uh, 70, I mean, it's incredible. If somebody who was like listening in the baby carriage, somebody four years old back when the show started is, is now drinking heavily in a bar somewhere. So uh, unbelievable. Tempest Fugit um, here, uh, the first vegan show ever ever as heard along the way on the Air America Radio Network, uh, GCN Radio Network. Yes, that's Alex Jones Network had us on there just to make him look a little more sane, you know, a little more normal. Like, let's put this guy Bob Linden on with a vegan show. Um, GCN said it was the first food show it ever had, and uh, I was uh, I was interested to learn that this is actually a food show. Maybe it is. Uh, and along the way, all these years, we've been on various CBS and Clear Channel radio stations around the country, and now this amazingly awesome podcast. And uh, oh, Happy New Year! Happy New Year! Um, and uh, if you really want to have a happy 2018, definitely check out the music on my new 24 7 music radio station, Radio Bobby. Dot com radio b o b b y dot com yes that's for my past life before vegan activism um, I was a program director at music radio stations all around the U S and uh, so I invite you to listen to just how how professional how professional Radio Bobby is uh, of course this program here uh, go vegan radio with Bob Linden is no indication of uh, professionalism <laughs> at all. Uh, I am, uh, all right, I'm, maybe I'm not so professional on this show, huh? But I am emotional. And uh, if you've been following me, uh, stalking me in my socialist media, um, such as on Facebook, uh, Go Vegan Radio with Bob Linden, or Twitter, at Go Vegan Radio, I have a newfound appreciation for outrage over cage-free eggs and that complete scam that it is. Uh, 
I guess it was when that wacky organization, Animal Charity Evaluators, came out with its list of top charities for 2017. And again, it is that revolving door among four charities only, all Nick Cooney cronies, all selling out the chickens and selling us cage-free eggs as if torture, mutilation, harsh confinement, and murder of every single bird were a victory uh, without a peep, without a peep about the horrors. So anyway, um, maybe maybe you can back me up on this. And you know, I'm asking the organization uh, that uh, the organizer of the so-called uh, Animal Rights Conference, which will be in L.A. in June, I'm asking the organizer to schedule me to do a talk entitled Egg Industry Infiltration of the Animal Rights Movement and the Corruption of Animal Rights Charities. So uh, what do you think the chances are that Alex Hershaft and Farm, the Farm Animal Reform Movement, uh, will schedule me for that? since most of the headliners at the conference are the egg industry and corrupt animal charities themselves. Uh, so I, I don't know. Uh, I don't know. Uh, actually, I don't know how we've allowed this to happen, uh, such infiltration, such, such a hijacking of the animal rights movement. So whether I'm scheduled for a talk uh, at, at this egg industry conference or not, uh, I intend to be... Uh, at the location there, either uh, you know, protest, education, advocacy, uh, in opposition to this whole cage-free egg scam. You know, also I uh, found myself unfortunately in a Costco fairly recently, and I saw all the all the cartons, all the boxes piled up that were labeled cage-free eggs, and. Uh, you know, I, I, I see the torture, mutilation, um, I, I see the imprisonment, I see all the birds killed, um, and I don't see the victory for animals. Uh, I, I don't see the happy face there uh, that uh, I'm supposed to uh, stamp on those cartons, so um, I refuse. I refuse. I will rise up. I will resist. So um, I wanted to look at a study was from the food industry, this study. I will have to minimize something here on my computer screen and see. So um, this was a study called Laying, ha uh, Laying Hen Housing Research Project. Um, and this was from the Coalition for Sustainable Egg Supply, uh, which as I said, is a food industry coalition. Although, are eggs food? Really? The incredible, inedible egg is food? So, anyway, this study came out in March 2015, and it talks about um, everything from animal health and well-being, I should say in quotes, um, to uh, conditions for workers and just a, a number of factors, but um, I guess all that would actually interest me would be um, what it said here about uh, animal health and well-being. So, it seems that uh, 
the chickens are not loving uh, the cage-free environment as much as the so-called animal advocates. The mortality rate is much higher in the cage-free system. And they did, uh, this research did comparisons of, of what it calls conventional housing, uh, enriched housing, and aviary housing. So conventional would be uh, the cages with the most confinement and then um, enriched. The birds are supposed to have more room and they get a stick uh, for a perch or some some wood shavings as a bath or whatever. Um, And uh, so it looks so the comparison is is among the three conventional enriched and aviary and it says hen mortality was much higher in the aviary system or cage-free system due to a variety of conditions including hypo uh, hypocalcemia which uh, i googled before the show so that i could say is a blood calcium condition doesn't everybody know that? Um, so, and then also egg yolk um, uh, peritonitis, which uh, is an infection, and also to behavioral issues with hens either being excessively pecked or picked out, vent, um, it says here. So uh, it says there was less mortality in the enriched colony due to behavioral issues and the least in the conventional system. Uh, Let's see, it says there was the most egg yolk uh, uh, peritonitis in the conventional cage, less in the um, cage-free, and the least in the enriched colony cages. and and by the way, colony, you know, this enriched colony uh, stuff, I mean, they're battery cages also. And I might say that prior to uh, all of these groups being for cage-free egg production, uh, they joined in a coalition with United Egg Producers campaigning for these uh, enriched colony battery cages. And again, all of these groups were quite deceptive in... Uh, in, in the way that they were selling it. Uh, they were saying, uh, like, uh, end barren battery cages, you know? So people thought, oh, I, we're, we're ending battery cages. But no, we were ending that the, the battery cages were barren. Um, so we're, we're ending barren battery cages by shoving a stick in it, calling it a perch and some wood shavings, calling it a bird bath. So um, all of these groups did a complete about about face you know uh, the humane society of the united states uh, led the charge and groups that well it used to oppose uh, uh, these uh, enriched furnished battery cages it opposed them it said so on its website and you know overnight it turned around and a bunch of other groups just follow it you know the its satellite group of groupies from Farm Sanctuary. Farm Sanctuary used to have how uh, unacceptable enriched, furnished battery cages were. And then turn around the next day, they're great. We love them. Same with Mercy for Animals and groups like that. Um, Groups like that 
used to oppose cage-free egg production. Mercy for Animals was quite adamant on its website, talking about how horrific um, cage-free egg production is. And then suddenly all of these groups are getting millions of dollars from the Open Philanthropy Project, and that changed their tune. Definitely now uh, they're, they're all out there pushing uh, horrible... Um, cage-free eggs and uh, being very deceptive about it. You know, you, you, you can't be an animal advocate. You can't be an animal charity and support cage-free eggs. I mean, it's just, why is that saying killing? We're, everyone for whom we advocate uh, should be killed, should be tortured, should be imprisoned, and we'll tell the public it's a good thing. So, anyway, uh, I'm... I'm as outraged about this as as can be, and uh, you know it's just uh, it's just deception and corruption, and it's not right. And somebody has to stand up for the chickens. And uh, this here vegan radio program um, certainly well, we take our responsibility seriously, and we hope that you will support us with a tax-deductible donation at GoVeganRadio.com. GoVeganRadio is a 501c3 nonprofit organization. Uh, there's a donate button at GoVeganRadio.com. You can support us through Patreon. You can uh, send us a check uh, payable to GoVeganRadio, P.O. Box 475-414, San Francisco, California, 94147. Okay, coming up next on the program, it will be Dr. Will Tuttle. Um, and later, as I mentioned, Dr. Mike Hudak. You have to hear his climate change revelations. They will be mind-blowing. Professor Gary Francione is off this week. He'll be back with us next week. And again, please, please, please find it in your heart. Um, better yet, find it in your wallet to support Go Vegan Radio with a tax-deductible donation. Um, on the website, there are over 600 programs archived at the website. And we, uh, we, we want your money just to uh, be able to, to, to keep doing what we're doing. You know, we're here uh, on behalf of the animals with the vegan show. We've also organized major events over the years, the World Vegan Summit and Expo and Planet Fest and Community Fest and World Fest. And um, so we're very festive in our approach here. Um, and uh, um, we just want to uh, make it uh, a happier world for all, meaning uh, help us help everyone go vegan.
Go Vegan Radio Facebook, Go Vegan Radio with Bob Linden. Uh, what else do we have going? RadioBobby.com, uh, mm-hmm. so that you have uh, uh, a happy 2018. Turn on the music there. Well, today we are talking to one of my favorite people in the world. We're going to catch up with Dr. Will Tuttle. Um, oh, and by the way, Will will be at one of my favorite vegan restaurants in the world this coming Thursday, which is January 11th, 2018. I have to practice uh, saying the year. Uh, Vegetarian House at 520 East Santa Clara Street in San Jose. Coming up this Thursday, we'll, we'll be talking and uh, let's see, starting at 6.30, you get a video presentation and appetizers, and 7 o'clock right. is the lecture, 8 o'clock, vegan buffet at Vegetarian House for just $20 in advance and 25 at the door, and students 15. How oh, wonderful. Vegetarianhouse.us. Hi, Will. How are you? Oh, Bob, good to hear your voice, and yeah, I'm doing great. Thanks, everyone, for listening in. It's great to be here. And it's uh, great to catch up with you. I think, let's see, the last time we were in touch could have been the first ever World Vegan Summit and Expo in Los Angeles. I saw you there. Um, you spoke there. Uh, I I disorganized that event, and then... Uh, yes, see. right, right, right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So... Uh, Oh, so uh, for for people uh, listening in, uh, maybe who uh, are not familiar with Will Tuttle, uh, let me just say that uh, Will uh, has been on the show numerous times. He's the author of the, no, not number three, not number two, but yes, the number one Amazon bestseller, The World Peace Diet, and... Uh, Will has his MA in Humanities from San Francisco State, PhD from Berkeley, and uh, what what a varied life, a Dharma master in Zen Buddhism, uh, recipient of the Peace Abbey's Courage in Conscience Award, and uh, I would be remiss if I ever missed saying that he is the recipient of the Shining World <laughs> Hero Award. I don't know why I keep mentioning that, that award, but... Uh... I know why. Tell us why. Why, 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 why would I Why, know? Bob, why? <laughs> oh, I got it too, huh? Yeah. Right. <laughs> Two Shining World Heroes... Uh, right, same. Of, and, and and how humble we are, uh, how, how egomaniacal, shining world <laughs> hero. Um, but the jacket is great. Do you still have the the jacket? That was the best. Oh yeah, nice the, jacket. The Definitely. best part of getting an award like that from the uh, Supreme Master Ching Hai International Association, it wasn't some little plaque that goes on the wall. It was something practical, like a all right, great keep you warm with a hood on it. Yeah. Save energy. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's great. So, um, gee, what have you been up to? You've been a world traveler. You you were in China. So, what what's going on with you? Thanks, Bob. Yeah, we have been traveling a lot in 2017. The latter last, latter part of uh, last year, uh, we took a, a great uh, lecture tour that went around the world. We which went around the world with our two little carry on bags in 66 days. Madeline and I. We're on the road and uh, traveling by mainly by uh, trains quite a bit. Of course, airplanes somewhat, buses and so forth. In uh, Europe, we started out in Spain, giving uh, a lecture there, and um, and then quite a few in Switzerland and in England, 
there was the uh, London Veg Fest there and a bunch of other events. And then we flew to India, and it was really interesting, actually, to uh, see what was what's been happening in India. Uh, I have to say, I was uh, quite—I uh, I was kind of prepared for the worst because the fellow who organized the lecture tour for us, a wonderful man named Shankar. Narayan, he's the founder of the only national vegan uh, society in India called the Sattvic Indian Vegan Society. And he told us that veganism is, you know, really just beginning kind of in India. They have lots of vegetarians, of course, as we know, but dairy is just so deeply ingrained in their culture that veganism is really uh, just barely starting out. It's meeting enormous resistance. And uh, so we, he didn't know if we'd get many people coming to the events, really. But we were, we did lectures in 10 cities all over India. It was really uh, fantastic. I mean, we were in uh, a lot. You know, we were in uh, Mumbai. I lost you. I am Surat and Hyderabad. You cut out for a oh, second. Oh, did so, I? Yeah, yeah. You said you were in... I think you might have been uh-huh. Mumbai, and then you cut out for a yeah, second. Yeah, okay, sorry, yeah, Mumbai, and then uh, in Mangalore, and Bangalore, Chennai, Pune, and uh, Calcutta, and Hyderabad, and Delhi, and Surat, and you know, just a lot of different cities, and the, the really good thing was that uh, we, had, we had excellent turnouts, uh, virtually all of the events, up to 800 people, actually, in Surat, and uh, we had a really good... Um, coverage by the media the 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 times of india which is basically the new york times equivalent in india interviewed me twice and was very positive uh, actually in their appraisal of veganism and how eating dairy uh, is causing diabetes and a lot of other problems and water pollution and abuse of animals and so forth so i think it was a great, you know, kind of a start. I think we were the first ones to do, at least in the modern era here, to do a vegan uh, nationwide lecture tour. I think Jay Dinshaw did one back in the 60s or something, I heard. But since then, nobody's really attempted this. And uh, it was it was challenging, you know, just traveling in India. They were really worried that doing such an intense schedule where we were traveling every day and speaking every day uh that we may, maybe something would we wouldn't make it with our health i guess a few people have tried before and got sick and had to cancel everything but we um did great we were well, you're, healthy, you're, vegans. you're, you're through, vegans so. of course right gonna... <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah we're vegans and we're and we uh also i think it helped a little bit that just we had uh, a lot of vegans in each city kind of preparing the food. It was great. They really are great chefs, I have to say. I mean, these Indian people have a lot of experience in preparing food, and when they turn their attention to vegan cook- cooking, it was really spectacular, uh, really had, delicious we, food. We love Indian food. Yeah, what, where, where, right. Did you have, uh, what is it called, the Bangan Bertha? Do you know what, what that yeah, is? Yeah, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if I had that, but I, we had uh, Tali, I mean, vegan Tali, which is kind of a whole collection of different uh, vegetables and sauces and rice and bread and all kinds of stuff, but it was all vegan. And they don't have very many vegan restaurants in India yet, strictly vegan. They have a few in each city, though, and we, we always went to those. A lot of young people... It was great to see uh, these really dynamic, happy, you know, vivacious young, you know, p- people in their twenties uh, that are vegan and starting uh, little vegan groups. So we worked with the local groups. That's one of the things that Madeline and I really think is important in general. 
is to uh, try to strengthen the grassroots vegan movement wherever we go, whether it's in the United States or Europe or China or India. Uh, out as much as we can so that they can get, you know, increase their mailing list, increase their outreach and become more visible. And we actually started, I mean, they, we started a couple of vegan groups while we were in India. The, I mean, the local people started one in Gujarat. There had never been a vegan group before our lecture there. And uh, so it was really, it was really nice to see uh, people going vegan. Also, this guy, this one guy who organized our lecture in, in uh, Surat, he said, well, he, he was a Jain. The Jains are, are renowned for uh, the teaching of ahimsa, which is nonviolence, although they still quite often are eating dairy, pretty much always are eating dairy, most of them. And you, you uh, and I, for, you and I both you, uh, spoke yeah. at the Jain Temple and right. uh, Milpitas. Remember that uh, exactly? Yeah. I remember that. Yeah, a few years ago now, and uh, when we were there, and you were you you were great. Yeah, I remember you showed that the video of the Conklin Dairy and uh, the terrible abuse of cows to the to you know probably 500 Jains, and um, they. Well, they well, were then, but then the, the reaction was, well, what be. can we do? The, the reaction was, well, what can we do to change this? And and the answer is, you really yes. can't. There's going to be, right. you know, you can't remove the animal abuse. So what, right. you, what you have to do is is go vegan, of course, right. you know, which, right. is, which is ahimsa. And dairy is all ahimsa, right? Right, so, right. <laughs> right. Exactly. Yeah, that, that was the reaction. I remember that so clearly. They said, well, we, ha we have to get the, the dairy operators to stop doing this, you know, and and yeah. it's ridiculous because when you have these animals, I mean, they, you know, when nobody's looking and they're giving you trouble, that's what people do. They hit them and they kick them and, you know, they, they, it's just, you know, it's well, – They don't I mean, want to move. Owning, you know, they, 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 no, you're they, owning they, them. Right. They don't right. want to move when we when, when the, the oppressor wants them to move. They don't seem to want to move right. at that time. So so you get electric prods. You, you do. You get kicked. You know, it's, 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 right. it's horrendous. You know? Yeah, that's an important point, Bob. I think, you know, there's this idea – that somehow there was the good old days, you know, when in the good old days we had milk and we had a little meat, we had a little eggs, but you know, the animals had a good life and they had room to move around. And what I, I always try to impress upon people is that as soon as we own a being that's right there, that's violence. If I have a being and I say, you are my property, no matter if I think I'm treating them well or not, I've already stolen their sovereignty. I've stolen the most precious thing any being has, which is their life. You know, I've made them. You know, they have to stay within my sphere of influence. They have to eat the food I give them, and so forth. And and so I so in India, you know, I was telling the people that you know constantly this that itself is himsa. You know, that's violence to own another being. We understand that. That's why we don't allow slavery supposedly anymore, although it's still rampant. But but it's based on this idea of uh, owning another being and somehow treating them well. And you can't do that. You, you, owning them already is treating them badly. Exactly. And uh, so exactly. yeah, animals aren't property. So right, yeah. right. So but but anyway, it was great to see in India that this message is is percolating, you know, into the into the into the mainstream. But it was kind of comical sometimes, just how how um, how how small in a way the movement is in a sense. I mean, like when we were in Calcutta. I mean, think of Calcutta. Calcutta is a city of, you know, maybe ten or twelve million people. And uh, we gave a lecture there. Went very well. And then afterwards, this woman came up to me and she and said, "I am the per. I am, I have been a vegan longer than anyone in Calcutta." 
<laughs> that was so funny. What, what is it, like, six she, months? <laughs> yeah, right. And I said, wow, how long have you been a vegan? She said, I've been a vegan for eight years. You know, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know but it, it, it's just, you know, it's so kind of funny, you know, that it's still such kind of a new new thing in, in a sense in India. There's this feeling like, wow, you know, it's, it's kind of a new thing. But it's growing very fast. And one fellow said, and I don't know if he's, he may be right about it, but he said that he thinks that India, once it catches on what veganism is, will will become uh, the most vegan country in the world very quickly. You know, and I, I think it's an interesting idea. Will it because, need to very quickly if we are uh, well, yeah, to be saved from climate stop. change? You know, yeah, and, the, right. and the methane from yeah. cows. Right, right. No, the the absolute. Uh, the, you know, they have the largest cow herd in the entire world and and the and, and I learned about that I didn't really realize that there have been these three revolutions in the last 50 years in India or maybe 70 years the, the and they've all been a disaster and, and so the whole idea is we need a, you know another revolution but the first revolution they talk about was the green revolution the so-called green revolution back in the 50s 60s and into the 70s where basically these large petroleum and pesticide herbicide fungicide fertilizer you know corporations went into india and just basically told everybody and stopped people from their from their indigenous farming and said you got to use machines and turn it on a basis from uh, of soil to oil basically and so already that started depleting the soil and destroying the environment and people's livelihoods and getting rid of a lot of the small local farmers. And then the second revolution that they really called it uh, was the White Revolution in the 70s, mainly. It started in the 60s and the 70s. The government of India was really deprived of milk. They were not drinking enough milk. And they uh, – I'm not sure okay, who so, their advisors so, so, were. So there was I, a, little, a little breakup um, – in uh, really yeah yeah um, on, on the Skype just for a second there uh, so basically you were you were saying that there was another revolution in the yeah. 70s and uh, then the government and then there was a, a kind of a break so right so okay so in the um, 70s there was a revolution called the white revolution and the government decided that the people in India were not eating enough dairy products, were not drinking enough milk, and they made a huge campaign to increase the amount of uh, dairy con- production and consumption in India, and it was uh, a massive you know, multi-billion dollar uh, project that's, that went on for uh, like 20 years, and the White Revolution really just increased the amount of dairy production. They just gave a lot of you know, loans to just get people to have more cows, eat more cheese, drink more milk. And uh, so that basically brought the dairy consumption and production in India increased like fourfold. And uh, so now it's a huge problem. There's diabetes and there's the, – you can anywhere you go, it seemed like for us traveling in India, you see the devastating effects of dairy uh, – production and just just brown polluted water and, and so forth yeah. so, so, and, how, so how is the health of the people then it reflects the usual consumption of the well there's products. two things you know there's two things i mean one is that obesity and diabetes and heart disease and so forth are just going up very quickly and uh in fact i think they have the highest rates of diabetes now in the whole world uh because their dairy consumption is up so high and um the other thing that i uh, I could, I guess, perhaps link to this too, which I talk about in the World Peace Diet, 
is the domination of the feminine, you know, because, you know, dairy basically is the domination and exploitation of the feminine dimension of life. And Egg, uh, eggs, too, probably could be included eggs in that. Too. Right? Uh, eggs, I mean, all, all animal agriculture, all, I mean, you know, pigs are, the, they're raped and babies are stolen. And so all animal agriculture is, but dairy is especially acute, I think. And uh, so, you know, in India, of all the cities in of all the cities in the world, for example, according to a recent uh, study, Delhi is the most dangerous and oppressive place for a woman to live in the entire world. Wow. And uh, there's the highest rates of rape, the highest uh, levels of of oppression, domination, beating, uh, mutilation, and so forth of women is in you, Delhi. You are what you eat. Well, that's the thing. So in India, we, I was even talking to, um, like talking to Shankar. I, I can't remember the exact statistic, but it was really pretty shocking. He said that when they do interview, you know, when they do polls of women, Indian women, and ask them if it's okay for men to beat their wives, you know, like eighty-five percent of women say yes, it's okay. You know, and the educated women, it's like seventy-five percent. But the, you know, so most women. I think it's fine to be beaten by their husbands if they do something they shouldn't do, oh, and this underlying. Yeah, I know it's, it's, it's almost, sort of. It's kind of unbelievable, actually. Um, right, I know that, that it's so high, and and uh, so that so this this but the, but to me there's a connection with this massive domination of the of the female, which is what dairy production is, and the objectification of, of the female and stealing her babies and stealing her milk, and they, they you know they say these cows are well. Treated, but they're not well treated. I mean, you see all over the place. We see you see cows uh, that are starving, their ribs and bones sticking out, and they're eating trash. And they've been because their their dairy production has declined. People just let them go, and and they're wandering India. You know, so <clears throat> this domination of the dairy cows, I think, is um, a result of the white revolution. I mean, it goes back thousands of years, but it's much worse than I think now in ways than it ever was. That's why the, the vegan revolution is so important. And um, no, I, I I I can see what you're saying on that. I mean, it makes total sense, really. I mean, yeah. yeah. And, and it all starts with rape. You know what I mean? It's it's it it oh, all starts it, it all starts with rape, and then of course there's right. uh, kidna- kidnapping along the way, and uh, you know, and then right. and, and I guess here all the cows are killed, and there I guess uh, they have it good. They're just let go when uh, they can't produce anymore, right? Is well, that... well, it's both. I mean, a lot nowadays they they kill a lot of them too. But but uh, the smaller farmers they still will just let them go quite often. That's kind of considered standard procedure. But there's more and more, of course, factory farms are, are springing up everywhere. Mm-hmm. Too. Were, were there so... people attending your lectures who were, you know, st- obviously still consuming dairy? Yes, and, and... absolutely. Yeah, yeah. They're still so veg- what, most what of them. What were they saying? Most... What were they? What, what... Well, there's different, you know, there's different responses that people have, and um, for the most part, no, I mean, I have to say, no one really fought with me about this. I mean, you can't really fight anyway. I mean, <laughs> what can you say? You know, it's not, it, it's unnecessary. Here I am. I've been a vegan now for 38 years. I haven't really been to a doctor in 38 years. I mean, we've been very healthy, and in general, it's well understood that people who eat a, a healthy plant-based diet have a much lower rates of the diseases that are filling up hospitals, and so. So, you know, so, get, so get this. I, just starting starting with uh, this this week's show, I, I have a new sponsor called Health IQ, um, uh-huh. and and people can go to Health IQ slash GVR as in 
Go Vegan Radio, but believe it or not, this is a life insurance company that's giving lower rates to vegans. So, you know, <laughs> right. the, what does sense. that say? I mean, I mean, you know, the, this is the, the the facts support it. They they wouldn't they wouldn't do this if uh, if, right. if they didn't have uh, data supporting. You know, and and I'm I'm vegan now. You said for yourself, thirty eight years. You got me by by four years there, and I don't really think I would be alive today if, <laughs> if I weren't vegan. Right. I mean, my my father died of a sudden heart attack at age forty seven, and wow. uh, all of his family and all of my mother's family all had heart disease, and we all thought it was in the genes, but it was actually on the plate. You know, so exactly. I mean, I'm I'm grateful to be. My age now, I thought, you know, I'd be lucky to make it to 47 considering, you know. So. <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. It's like I think uh, Howard Lyman says when people say that uh, disease runs in the, in the family, it's because everybody in the family has their legs under the same dinner table. Exactly. It runs in the family. It's not in the genes. It's on the plate. Definitely. <laughs> right. You know, so. right. Yeah. And that's, I so feel that's... great. I mean, I feel – I really feel like I'm 19 or maybe – 21 yeah uh, and how about you you're feeling pretty good to look at the energy you have you're you're going around the world you know you no know, it's fantastic really that that's one of the great side effects you know the just the um, the fact that we're basically healthy have plenty of energy and uh, don't have to spend any money going for checkups or seeing doctors for this and that and the other thing and I think it's it's just wonderful I mean that you know I can't guarantee that's going to be the case for everyone but in general I mean it's pretty well known now it's it's clear that the risks um, that people who eat a healthy vegan diet are for the for the diseases that are plaguing everybody, you know, are, are just much much less, and that's a great thing, you know. And, and so, so the, um, the but the point your you know your question was that what did people say, you know? And I talked about this, and for the most part, I think the. Um, most serious uh, criticism, I guess, of my ideas or questioning of my ideas came from people uh, who said, "Listen, you know, this is a tradition. You know, this is your, this is part of our, of how we've lived. And farmers, you know, are out there, and they have a cow or two, and they use that to make money. You know, if they didn't, if they didn't have this to make money." You know, how would they live? What would they, you know, they, they couldn't make it. They'd probably, you know, starve. They sell the milk so they can live. You know, it's like this this kind of, you know, the playing on the violin strings and, oh, they'll all, everybody will die if we don't have the cows to save us. You know, that that kind of a thing. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and, and, it, and it, in a way, it, on the surface, it looks like, well, it's a valid argument. But it, first of all, I mean, they said the same thing. I, one of the things I think I, it's important to say, I think, in a sense, is there is a, there's parallels to these kinds of arguments. Like, for example, one, the main argument for slavery in, in, the, in the South, in South Carolina, whatever, back in the 1830s and 20s was it was absolutely necessary. You know, economically, it was necessary. We have to have slaves. If we don't have slaves, you know, we'll all just die. We can't, you know, you can't, you can't have the system that we have is based on this. You know, we have to have it. It's not true. I mean, everybody didn't die when, without slavery. And it's the same thing with with the the farmers and their cows, they I I just think in 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 general, I mean, people who have studied this say it's just the opposite. Having the cow in many ways is a burden because the cow needs to eat, right? And there's not that much food around. The cows are eating a lot too, and uh, you get some money for it. But it's a whole system that's basically 
uh, harming the environment, polluting the water, and forcing farmers to grow food, feed for the cows and use the land for that when they could be growing vegetables and selling those and making money that way. Or doing, you know, we have to just understand that this is unethical, it's unhealthy. And I heard the same argument when when we were in, in New Zealand. You know, they said the same thing so strongly, especially on the radio. They were always saying that. You know, our whole economy is based on dairy. If we didn't have dairy, what would happen? And I could see the results of it in New Zealand. And it's the same thing in India. You can see the clear cutting of forests. You can see the streams that used to be clear are now muddy and polluted. You can see the sick people, the the overweight, diabetic, you know, the, all these things that happen that come from eating all this fat and cholesterol and acidifying uh, animal protein and the casein that causes so many problems and diseases and so forth. And so it's almost like saying, like in the United States, what's our big industry? One of our biggest industries is the weapons industry, right? And say, well, we've got to have wars. I mean, <laughs> you know, if we didn't have wars, we'd, everybody would go out of business. We'd lose our jobs. We, you know, we need to bomb a few people in order to, you know, in order to be healthy. And in a way, it's, it's even in some ways it's better because most weapons, at least you hope they won't be used. You, you know, the landmines and the bombs, you kind of stockpile them and hope they won't be used. But with dairy – or meat, I mean, it's definitely used. I mean, <laughs> you know, the animals are killed. The animals are, you know, raped and abused and destroyed. And, and the products are eaten and they do cause, you know, the bombs The bombs of these foods do go off constantly. And so it's something that really does harm people and the earth and the animals. And, and it's it, it's silly, I think, if, if, to... If they really wanted to, to protect the people, they'd be droning the, uh, the, the slaughterhouses and the dairy farms. If yeah, they, yeah, you know, exactly. <laughs> put so, the bombs you know. to good use. I don't really mean that. I don't mean to make a... I, I'm not supporting violence. Right. I'm just saying, like, you know... Uh, like to get, to get real, like uh, how many people die, you know, from meat, dairy, fish, and egg consumption versus uh, terrorists? Uh, you know, I mean, it's uh, oh, I know. that's for sure. Yeah, exactly. No comparison. That, that, those those are the big killers. Yeah. So so basically, it's it's just you know being loving. I mean, I I realize that I can't come in there like I'm some kind of outside expert, but just to be loving with the people and say, listen, you know, I I understand this. I was raised the same way, eating a lot of meat, dairy products, and eggs, but I'm so glad I discovered at one point in my life that there's nothing in these foods that we need to be healthy. All the research shows that the countries with the highest dairy consumption have the worst bones, you know? (laughs) So how is it that we can say we need dairy dairy for bone or the people that eat the most meat have the highest risk of these diseases? And and then when I discovered the routine abuse of animals and discovered how why people are going hungry because we're feeding food that could feed people to animals and that these food shortages are Basically, the main f- source of conflict in the world is, is these are food shortages, and those food shortages are, are rampant in India. I mean, it's really a problem, and and so we have you know we have meat and and uh, dairy consumption growing up in India, and it's contributing to these problems. And uh, that's actually what I was going to say that the third uh, revolution was ca- is called the at least by the vegans we call it the Red Revolution. The last maybe twenty years. McDonald's is really in, in Kentucky Fried Chicken, Burger King, you know, these fast food, U.S. fast food companies just going in. And the red revolution is the meat revolution. And that's in full swing in India, unfortunately. There's a big increase in the amount of 
of status that people put on eating meat and traditionally vegetarian places have been going uh, into getting into more uh, eating meat. And so uh, I, I just was so glad we could be there to uh, talk about the enormous benefits of vegan living and 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 encourage the vegan restaurants that are starting up in the vegan meetup groups and uh, the, the various vegan uh, cultural groups that are growing because – you know, I think India does have a great foundation, you know, in in Ahimsa teachings and in it's in general in their sensitivity to nature and so forth. That they will, I think, once they get out of this uh, this mindset. But I told them that it's really, in, in a sense, it's a it's a it's a exploitation, not only of the animals but of them by in many ways by Western corporations to make a lot of money. Where do the Western corporations make their money? I mean, you know, they make their money selling meat and dairy. They make their money selling uh, GMO uh, crops and, and seeds and, and uh, glyphosate and so forth. And they make money on drugs. Uh, you know, they're being exploited, the Indian people, by Western uh, corporations and financial institutions. And they shouldn't allow their government to just cave in to these corporations and eat all this stuff. And you know, they should stand up for themselves. And remember what Gandhi said, you know, that, that the truth is in their independence and in their own uh, traditions, which are eating basically plant-based, you know, basically vegan food. I mean, they have a dairy tradition. They go back uh, more than about 7,000 years, then that then there was no dairy in India, you know, and that and they go back. They, they're proud to say they go back 30,000, 40,000 years. And then so at that point, they were totally plant-based. They were eating what we would call a vegan diet. And uh, they have great recipes for that, for those kinds of meals. And so I think that there's a tremendous opportunity, actually, in both India and China. Because I think China, is, you know, when we go to China, we've been there now three times in the last year. And uh, it's the same thing. They have, they never got the dairy bug. That's the great thing about China. They don't have this whole thing with dairy. So uh, for them, I, I think uh, it's really easy to have uh, a strong vegan movement, and we're seeing in China the movement really growing fast. And I would say in Taiwan, it's probably the strongest it is anywhere in the world. I mean, in Taiwan, there's a huge vegan movement. So it's really uh, – it's very, very positive, I think, to uh, to see what's happening in these other countries and to realize that it, that uh, there's people like us working with, with – um, uh, social media and podcasts and broadcasts and writing things and starting vegan restaurants, you know, all over the world. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, I mean, it's, uh, I mean, if, if we, uh, if we look at, you know, Report Buyer UK uh, coming out and talking about uh, 6% of Americans now identifying themselves as vegan, um, that's, yeah, that's huge. That what what could that mean? Eighteen million people, fifteen, twelve. You know, it's like, you know, certainly right. more millions than than the populations of many countries around the world. And and think we of see that huge yeah. huge growth in the UK. Um, yes, oh, you mentioned. Were you interacting with the Jane community? Did we? Did you you mention that? But I don't yes. know. Yes. Uh, quite a India. bit, yeah, quite a bit. The Janes uh, came to um, – and they sponsored some of the events, and they were great. You know, Like one thing was really interesting. Like in M Mumbai, when we first got there, they uh, – I spoke at the kickoff – I can hear your dog there. I spoke at the kickoff of the of a 18-day of a, um, vegan uh, conference that they're having. I mean 18 days – 
uh, Vegan Fest Festival in Mumbai where they're having over a hundred different events uh, all promoting veganism like lectures and films and cooking classes and coaching classes and yoga classes and all these things but they're all vegan oriented they had this wonderful guy he's a really nice guy he's um, a young vegan from India who was the very first vegan to ever climb to the top of Mount Everest and uh, he was speaking about that and so there were Janes that were organizing that they, the Janes organized that whole event and um, in Mumbai, and then in, when we were in Surat, I mentioned that there was uh, three, uh, 800 people came to a very large event we did, and they, that was all uh, organized by the Jains. And this one fellow who organized the event, it was great. He said, uh, you know, it's so great you're giving this, this talk and promoting veganism. And I said, so are you a vegan? And uh, how long have you been a vegan? And he said, today's my first day. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's great. That's great. I could, because yeah. I, I do, I, I get so many people, you know, I, I always seem to have a vegan T-shirt on or sweatshirt or cap or something. Right. So I'm always getting comments from people like, all right, you know, high five, whatever. And very often yep. I say, well, how long are you vegan? It's like, well, I'm not. You know, and it's like, well, <laughs> well, thank you for being vegan. You know, they, they tell me, well, you know, yeah. that's, that's not enough. I mean. You have to do it, you know. So, right, right. Um, exactly. But there, but there is so much interest. I mean, you know, people are always, you know, talking about it when they see my sweatshirt. I was just uh, in San Francisco yesterday, and one of the park workers there, uh, you know, saw my shirt, and she said, "You know, who, who's who's vegan? You or the dog? You know?" And of course, both of us. Daisy has been vegan now for five years, and I'm, I'm Great. vegan yeah. for. Uh, 34 years now myself and uh and at the time i thought it might be detrimental to my health but that wasn't why i was doing it i was doing it for for the animals i couldn't participate in the violence against them and the killing so as far as i was concerned if it's detrimental to my health i guess i i have to do it um and and i um was uh you know mistakenly thought i was really doing something as a so-called vegetarian for 13 years um and uh until i was in san antonio and i actually finally learned about the the dairy and egg industries and you know, right. I, I immediately had to go vegan because I, I, I actually wasn't aware. I thought, well, chickens lay eggs and cows give milk and we right. got to be milked and you know all of that. So, but uh, right. I didn't know anything of the details behind it. What did, did you have like the moment that you went vegan? Like something, you know, where that went off in your head? Like for me? Yeah, for you. Yeah. Actually, for me, you know, it was it was um, the moment for me. Actually, was. Uh, I would say was when I went vegetarian in the sense that I was eating a regular you know, way of eating the typical meat dairy thing my whole life growing up. And it was really when I went to the farm in Tennessee when I was 22, I was on this pilgrimage with my brother walking and I saw this community and they called themselves vegetarians back then in 1975. The word vegan was practically unheard of. So, But they were eating a totally plant-based diet at the farm. There's about 900 people. So I saw them. They were all thriving. They had about 200 kids that they say were vegetarians, but they were vegans and they were thriving. You know, they no meat, dairy, eggs, and they were doing great their entire lives. These little little kids. So I, at that point, I made the connection. I, I heard they told me about the abuse of animals. They told me about the hunger of people. And and um, and I had the example of eating you know tofu and vegetables every day with these people. So I went 
basically vegetarian at that point, well, like you know, from one day to the next. Vegetarian and should mean vegan. I mean, once, should, once again, right. I, I feel right. like the compromise by industry. I mean, first uh, right. people were saying, uh, you know, I'm a, a lacto-vegetarian, meaning dairy, or lacto-ovo-vegetarian yeah, right. egg. So, right, but but right. then suddenly those the prefix drops off. And right. vegetarian, so so people can have uh, you know a cheese omelet, a glass of cow's milk, a right, toast right, with exactly. cow fat butter, and and say <laughs> that's a vegetarian meal. And by the way, I should yeah. say that vegetarian house is a hundred percent vegan, totally vegan, right, totally right. vegan. Um, right. And uh, I should also mention that will will be there this coming Thursday, January eleventh, twenty eighteen. You know, I talk about vegetarian house all the time, and I've, I've had people say to me, well, you know, I don't want to go there. I don't want to go to a place that has dairy and eggs, you know, to show them. You know? <laughs> right, right. No, it's 100% vegan, organic, non-GMO. I mean, like, right. some, of the, some of the best food in the world. Yeah, and, uh, exactly. and people, people should, grow uh, people, yeah, people should definitely, if you're in the Bay Area, if you can get over to San Jose, I would like to, but my jalopy is just like, <laughs> you know, if there's anybody carpooling from the East Bay, maybe, the East maybe Bay, right. That, you know? So, but, uh, yeah. Uh, vegetarian House, uh, the website is vegetarianhouse.us, 520 East Santa Clara Street. We'll, uh, we'll be there this Thursday, as I said, which is January 11th. Uh, 6.30 video presentation and appetizers, 7 o'clock lecture, 8 o'clock vegan buffet. A vegan buffet at Vegetarian House is priceless, but it's only $20 in advance, 25 at the door, 15 for students. And um, you can get... Uh, you can get tickets at vegetarian house or i think uh what is this there's uh it's an eventbrite um link uh it's will tuttle will t-u-t-t-l-e j-a-n 11 you know as in january 11th so it's will tuttle jan 11 slash eventbrite.com Great. So, and oh, and the phone number uh, at Vegetarian House is uh, 408-292-3798. It is a spectacular restaurant, and it also has a booming catering business. So if you have an event coming up, a um, social event, a business event, and you want to impress everybody with the food, that is the place. So... Um, yeah. So. Yeah, I yeah I know, and I love Vegetarian House uh, not only for like you're saying the fantastic food they have, but just the um, the way they the way they've created this space where they have not only um, the delicious food in the restaurant, but they have gardens where they grow a lot of their own food, and you, so you're actually getting some food they grow right on their land, right there. And then the people do who do this, they don't do it for money. I mean, I have this feeling that it's, they really do it. Out of uh, out of the vegan motivation, which is to spread respect and kindness to all living beings, in, in this short time we're on the and that they're really living it. So I think to support them in what they're doing is really supporting everyone. Yeah, because I, that, they have that pure motivation. That I think is so, just fantastic. They do. They're they're wonderful there, and they are yeah. in it for you know the all, all the good yeah. reasons of, uh, of, of yeah. being vegan. And as I said, Vegetarian House is a hundred percent vegan, and it's organic, and and it's spectacular. I just I just love it. So uh, if there's right. any way I can make it over there uh, Thursday, I will. But uh, um, I definitely recommend yeah. that uh, people people check it out. So. 
Um, yeah, and you know, in this case, vegetarian means vegan, and it should be. But you know, as as with everything, right. the, comp the compromises come. the The animal rights uh, movement should mean uh, no eggs, no 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 right. dairy, no you know. But we, right. we get cage free eggs instead sold. Right. So it's uh, right. Everything gets compromised by by the corporate mentality. It seems you know. So yeah. Is, is there something now? And I I just saw it recently where supposedly there's uh, compassionate uh, dairy or milk or no kill or no slaughter. I, I, I thought I saw Chrissy Hind, unfortunately, uh, touting that, and Chrissy has been really? vegan for forever, and then suddenly she's okay with some, you know, I mean, another gimmick, another... Yeah, I mean. there's nothing there's nothing um, in any of these foods that we need to be healthy. I mean, we have to really understand that there's 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 no there's no nutrients in, in that that we have to imprison and harm or animals for or or even replicate their cells for or anything. I mean, you know, it's well understood that we've all been given this wonderful gift of a human body that doesn't require any animals to suffer to get the nutrients that we need to celebrate our lives on this beautiful planet. Well, we are, and we are that's herbivores. That's the thing. So we, here we, we are. We're, yeah. we're, we are herbivores. So, right. and, and why are we drinking the milk of another species, the milk that you know is there to uh, you know feed feed someone with four legs and a tail and horns and like we're 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 nothing alike right. you know i mean i mean we're we're alike in many ways but you know what we don't what we well you know i think what it is bob in a way is um it, it's a, an, it's a, it's an exploitation that is happening to people who are eating these foods you know and i i remember it started to dawn on me over the years that if you really look carefully at, for example, a dairy operation, they're not just eating grass like they normally would, you know, living in nature in the wild. They're eating grain because uh, the uh, exploiters of the cows, you know, the so-called farmers or agribusiness, discovered a long time ago that if you enrich the feed with grain, it boosts milk production, right? They give more milk and they fatten up, so they give more meat if they're used for meat. So. So they they, boot, they they enrich the feed in order to exploit the animals even more severely. It makes the cows sick. In fact, they get uh, when you give them a cow grain, they, they, their their system's not designed for that. It gives them e coli, the e coli, e coli problem comes from feeding cows grain instead of grass, which which ironically you know sickens a lot of humans. But they don't just stop with grain. They feed them animal. They feed them fish, for example, fish meal. I mean, fish. Enormous quantities of fish meal is mixed in with the feed, along with the grain, and then also not just fish meal, but the rendered uh, byproducts of slaughterhouse waste, like chickens and and pigs, are also fed to cows. And they were, feed, as you know, you know, everybody knows, feeding cows to cows too. So cows are being exploited. By being forced to eat foods they're not designed for, no one has seen a cow trying to, you know, eat meat, trying to catch fish or something. But they're feeding them all this fish meal, and if you think about it, so you know, this is something that is being forced upon them against their interests. But if this went, you know, hypothetically, so this goes on, you know, for generation after generation after generation, these cows are being exploited. And then, you oh, know, at one GMOs point, GMOs also. I mean, the, yeah, know, and GMOs, soy, all this stuff. Uh, yeah, GMO. exactly. All it, right, all the GMO corn and soy, and canola, GMO cotton seed, that's all going to cows. So the thing is, um, they are going to think, though, these cows will think eventually that there's 
supposed to be eating this, right? I mean, the, the mother cow will say to her little kid, and the kid says, well, why are we eating all this fish? Why are we eating all this stuff? She's, oh, this is what we're designed to eat. This is what we're supposed to eat. This is what we always eat. And it's, I think it's in a sense, it's the same thing that's happening to us as human beings. If we're eating dairy products or animal flesh, we're being exploited the same way. We're, we're eating foods that are not in our best interest. We're definitely going to be spending a lot of our money in hospitals and we're giving away our energy, we're giving away our intelligence, we're giving away the sense that we have of living in a beautiful world and we're paying people to do horrible work that we would never want to do ourselves, to stab animals all day, to impregnate animals against their will all day, to ejaculate males all day. I mean, we have to pay people to do this horrible work and uh, so we're paying them to, to be exploited but we're also being exploited by a system that is funneling massive quantities of money into the hands of a tiny, tiny elite. And so anyone who's eating animal foods is not only exploiting the animals, you're also being exploited. And it's really important to wake up and realize that anyone, anyone eating any animal foods is definitely being exploited. This is not a free choice. We're only doing it because we're following orders that are injected into us from the time we're little infants eating foods that you know, by, that have been told that we have to eat by our parents and teachers and doctors, and they've been exploited the same way, and they're well-meaning, but it's because they also are, you know, just been forced into and compelled into eating these foods. So at some point, we have to realize everyone's that a victim. A Every, everyone's yeah, everyone a victim. is right, and we're victimizing because we're victims. But we have to break out of that, and we can. That's why vegans are the only ones. Unfortunately, I mean, fortunately, I guess vegans are the only ones who can really heal this heal our world you know because vegans are the only ones who are not participating and causing this massive violence and so of course the people who are participating in the violence would like it if the vegans wouldn't say anything right i mean if when you have whenever you have a, a publicly committed crime the perpetrators are always hoping that the witnesses will shut up and not say anything and look the other way so as soon as a, a vegan comes along the perpetrators who are eating animal foods, who are taking out their wallets and paying for meat, dairy products, and eggs are hoping that we vegans will just be quiet, not say anything, just let them go on their way and keep eating animal foods. But the, the thing and is – don't make us feel guilty. Have, and don't make, don't us, make feel us feel guilty. guilty. <laughs> right. Don't make me feel guilty. Come on. Don't lay in guilt. But the thing is it's, we, you know, we're not making anybody feel guilty. We're just reflecting back the truth that they're being exploited and they're, and they're also, also exploiting other beings and it's going to destroy our entire planet if we keep going in this direction. So, and, and, and we get certain even health directives like the World Health Organization has come out and said processed meats cause cancer. Just, you know, a, a declaratory statement right there, which means, you know, everything from bacon and sausage to, uh, you know, all the deli meats and, you know, all, all of that hot dogs. So once we hear that, like, how can we continue to feed the kids hot dogs? You know, I mean, it's like school lunch programs. <laughs> look at this. Yeah, the school lunch program. Right. I mean, it's just uh, it's just so, so corrupt and, and it just forces everybody into illness like like you said like um you know i we were talking about dairy in india and i've i've had friends uh, along the way who have been uh hari uh, krishna and mm -hmm. uh, right. they they want to shut down the slaughterhouses but um they're they're not stopping their dairy you know m many of them aren't there there are of course some who some are, are but i, right. I have i have some friends who just feel like this is a natural arrangement it's a divine arrangement and then but i say 
you know, your religion shouldn't give you diabetes. Your religion shouldn't give you a heart attack. And I, and I look at, you know, the, the people in the Hare Krishna community. Diabetes is rampant there. You know, the, all the diseases. It's uh, It seems to be when you add meat, dairy, fish, and eggs, those these diseases appear. And it seems to show that those can be reversed by going vegan. Well, yeah, not only that, but it, their religion shouldn't force them to be uh, abusive and, har- and, and, and mutilating and, and o- owning other living beings. I mean, to harm others. That's, that's what really bothers me, unfortunately, is that so many of our re- so-called religious traditions are based on something completely non-spiritual to imprison and harm other beings. And dairy is one of those systems that is completely unsustainable. They've even tried, you know, Hare Krishna people have tried to have this, uh, you know, ahimsa dairy where they, where they don't kill any cows. And they have, you know, they have this dairy in West Virginia. They have a few other ones where they say all the milk from these cows is, it's totally, it's like, it's like this wonderful nectar because there's no cruelty. And, uh, and the thing is, it's completely unsustainable because cows, Will not give milk unless they're impregnated. So they so have to impregnate the, the cow. Rape rack. They're still well. No, they don't. They don't actually use the rape rack. But they oh, yeah. I mean they. But they have. They have. You know. They. They. But they kind of. You know. Push the bull in, and they, you know. Make sure that they keep getting impregnated. But, but the thing is, then they have these all these babies, and these babies. You know, all these babies. And so, what are they going to do with the babies if they're females? There's too many, <laughs> and, or, and if there's males, they castrate them and they try to use them as oxen. But you only need so many oxen, so now they have to sell them. And who's going to buy them? And then the same thing with the females; they have to sell them. And and pretty soon the whole system breaks down because in order to have dairy, you've got to kill them, the babies. You can't keep feeding them. There's too many because you you, you the, the the dairy production declines after you know eight or nine months and now you've got to reimpregnate them or they or you're or you're just feeding a cow and not getting any milk out of her and so it's incredibly expensive i mean if you're going to buy this milk and you know it costs like twenty thirty dollars a gallon because they have to feed all these cows that aren't doing anything except just feeding them because they don't you know and 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 it's utterly it's uh, it's completely absurd utterly absurd thing that and they're realizing it they're trying to make this <laughs> a hymsa dairy and running into the brick wall of the fact that it's impossible you have to kill a cow you have it's impossible yeah yeah it is it's so so that so that's the thing so that you know there's no way around it so so on our on our world tour again when when you're in china is there the concern for animals like what's uh, what's motivating a, a vegan movement there, like uh, is there a well, tradition? Well, China. I mean, my God, China is the birthplace of veganism on planet Earth. You know, it's it's where veganism started, and it's the most. It's very. It's great. I mean, going going to China, especially going to these. It's it's really good. In the last, I would say maybe seven or eight years, um, there's been this re- revival of uh, Chinese traditional Chinese cultural. Uh, respecting traditional Chinese culture, and so they, there's the, there are these centers and all the cities that honor Buddhism and Confucianism and Taoism and traditional Chinese uh, cultural uh, ways of doing things like tea and art and music and so forth. And they're all extremely vegan friendly. They're all they love to promote my lectures, have me come and talk about. Uh, how we're designed to thrive on a plant-based way of living. This is the way people in China lived for thousands of years. There was never any dairy. So 
for example, the Buddhist monasteries in, in China, and there's there were like tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of monasteries in China traditionally. And you go back, you know, a few hundred, you know, hundred years ago, and they were basically all vegan. These were vegan communities where the monks ate rice and vegetables. They never ate dairy. They didn't eat fish. They didn't eat eggs. They were plant-based, and they were beautiful. They were basically centers of of civilization in China back in the Song Dynasty, the Tang Dynasty, and so. Um, and actually, what another thing that's interesting though is that the wealthier people in the society, as in most societies, ate meat. And uh, but they but the wealthier people would like to uh, support the monasteries, and so. If you go back to the Tang Dynasty, back in, in the Sung Dynasty, you know, almost a thousand years ago, roughly, um, we find that in these monasteries, the monks learned uh, for the first time how to make uh, what we would call today mock meats. You know, they would create uh, chicken and duck and goose and fish that would, out of out of seitan and out of uh, soy. Uh, to please the wealthy patrons that would come to have a meal at the temple, but since the temple didn't eat any meat, they would want to make them feel comfortable, so they would make some plant-based meat so they would be happy, so they would give money to the temple. <laughs> mm-hmm. And so so they created the first, what we would call today, you know, uh, vegan meats. Uh, way back a thousand years ago, you know, and so this is in this that, is that is a Buddhist tradition. I know, I've yeah, it's in the Buddhist tradition, ancient Buddhist tradition. So mm-hmm. this is really the birthplace, and and it was so great for me to go to these Buddhist monasteries. Like there's one in Kunming called the Three Harmonies Temple, where the mon- the monks are all vegan. They have a school that they that they uh, sponsor and that they basically provide for all the, for local children. It's totally vegan. They have a um, a sanctuary where they have some uh, animals, some some sheep, goats, pigs, and cows that have been rescued from uh, animal agriculture that are living their lives. They're educating. They've created actually a whole movement among the lay people called the Vegan Peace Movement, and they're giving lectures. They, I spoke in, actually in a shopping mall in Kunming, you know, to to bring the vegan message to just to the general public that they sponsored. Uh, so the, the the Buddhist movement is in, in in like in uh, in Guangzhou, I spoke in a Buddhist uh, temple there. They had probably 700 people came to hear me speak, promoting veganism. And and everybody's understanding and English. So the, so, so the they, Buddhist they all they're they're fluent. In no no English? no 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 they don't understand. No, no, no. Everything has to be translated, which oh. for me is really uh, tiring. But you know, I, I speak two sentences and then wait right. and speak. Two <laughs> right. But uh, but really, but it's great because they really are hungry. They really love this message, you know. And the Chinese government is the only government in the world that's actively promoting a reduction in meat consumption among the Chinese people. They've mandated that Chinese people eat less meat because it's better for the climate and better for the health and better for the water. Uh, and so. So if, if, they China, would, if they would only say eat no meat, we'll we'll, we'll, well, we'll get yeah. it, we'll get them there. We'll get them there. Well, right, but they're you know it's great that they're actually you know I, I it's so funny because when I say in China, <laughs> if I say to the to a, an audience in China, gosh, you know the Chinese government is is really great that they're really mandating that everyone reduce the amount of meat they're eating. 
Whereas in the United States, you know, the government is still promoting it. You know, they're still subsidizing it and everything. And I say, I wish the uh, I wish the government of the United States was as wise as the government of China. Everybody <laughs> claps and cheers. You know, <laughs> right, right, right. Oh, it was but, like it was like when when uh, speaking at the the Jain Temple here. I, you know, talking right. to the to, there were monks there and all. I was saying. Don't you be influenced by the Americans here? You have to influence right. Americans, you know. That's you know, exactly don't right. don't you start eating hamburgers, you know? That's like, exactly right. That's what I was. That's what I say. I, that's what I really feel, you know. In like going and speaking in China and India, you know, because there's this basic feeling that they, you know, that they should be learning from us. That we're more developed. We have, you know, the United States, the Western culture is more technologically developed and sophisticated and all that. And I'm saying, no, no, no. We need to learn from you. You've got, you've got, you're way ahead of us. On, on so much of this. And so in China, yeah, there's a lot of young people. The vegan movement is booming. A lot of vegan uh, restaurants going up everywhere, vegan groups. Uh, I mean, it's it's fantastic to see how well they cooperate, how they work together. And so so also, vegan, vegan peace movement, or, or was, yeah. was that uh, at a Buddhist, did you say that was at a that, Buddhist temple? or is that, that was that was, it's basically, um, I think it's the, the, uh, the brainchild of this wonderful Buddhist uh, uh, Zen master at this temple, the Three Harmonies Temple. I think he had the idea. He, they looked to him like the spiritual leader, but it's just lay people. It's like these young men and women uh, who put on lectures and have events and do leafleting and, and have uh, you know, radio and TV shows and all this stuff. Uh, so, so what, but what are they saying, like the vegan peace movement? Are they saying we need to go vegan to achieve peace? I mean, is that the what? Yeah, that's what it is. It's, it's basically, uh, I mean, it's really great because my book has been translated into uh, Chinese. And so they're selling my book and giving it away everywhere. Uh, and so it's, my, it's the teachings of the World Peace Diet, which draw a lot from Buddhism, right? I mean, I was a Buddhist monk. I don't call it that. It's not so obvious. But the basic teaching of being conscious, of being mindful, of being aware, the basic teaching that whatever we sow, we're going to reap, you know, the basic teaching of do not do to others what you would not have done to yourself. These are ancient Buddhist teachings. And they're also, you know, Confucian teachings, also Christian teachings, really. But, but they they're living it. You know, that's the difference. I mean, they really are trying to live these teachings rather than just talk about it. And in Buddhism, there's there is not this divide between humans and animals. In Buddhism, it's all sentient beings. So, killing, raping, stealing, it applies to our relation in our relationships. Not like in Christianity or in Western religions where it's only to humans and you can do whatever you want to animals. In Buddhism, it's explicit that it, re, it definitely applies to animals too. So, um, so there's a much stronger foundation for compassion and mercy and mindfulness in our behavior with animals in these religion in these countries because they just it's it's where people are at. If you say you're a vegetarian or a vegan in China, people will assume it's because you're a Buddhist. And they'll say, "Oh, you must be a Buddhist." You know, so it's uh, it's nice to see that there's a lot of non-Buddhists that are going vegan too because they. But but Buddhism really is the is a driving engine. In, in increasing uh, veganism and also Confucianism. I just learned a lot more about Confucianism, but there's this fantastic. If you go to um, uh, uh, Chufu, is the name of the city where Confucius was born and raised and lived his life. We went there, and there's a Confucian uh, temple there, but there's also outside of the city a community, 4,000 acre community with hundreds of people living there, and it's vegan and organic. The whole thing is vegan and organic. I'm moving. And, I'm moving there yeah, immediately. I mean, and anyone, yeah, they, they said that anyone is well. 
as well come and live there. You're building, they're building houses. They're building. They've already built okay, it, some it, beautiful it, it buildings, millions of up, dollars. It, it just broke up. Skype broke up a little oh. bit after I said I'm moving there. The, oh. You said you said uh, what? Every, said, everybody's welcome there, which means yeah, I am really there. moving there. Like well, to, they, to tell, <laughs> tell, tell us again the city and uh, yeah, <laughs> I'll, I'll Google beautiful. the map uh, directions or something. Right, GPS. right. Yeah, no, it's it's yeah, it's just outside of of the city of Chu. Qufu, and which is uh, sort of between Shanghai and Beijing, sort of central China, and um, yeah, there's there's uh, you know a few wealthy patrons of Confucianism who are vegans, but they're not just they're everything. The agriculture is all veganic. There's no bone meal, no blood meal, no manure. We had the most delicious food. They grew, you know, they grow pumpkins and they they made their own noodles from grain they grew themselves. It's a beautiful place. They have, uh, you know, a dining hall. They have cabins and houses and um, a main building, and they're building a lot of. Uh, in fact, what they're, they're the big building they're working on uh, next, which is one of the primary buildings, is for senior citizens. They they think that you know Confucianism is all about honoring the elders, and so they want want anyone who's an elder to be able to live there and and uh, have organic vegan food for the rest of their life. And so that's the next building, and then they're building a school for children to teach them all these principles but it's all about harmony with nature harmony among human beings uh and harmony uh with animals i mean that's that's the basic teaching and uh what's the name them, of the community again of, did you did you well it's a chinese name but it's right outside chufu i i know the i mean everything you know for me it's a little difficult because i don't read and speak chinese so i'm just uh, everything i say has to be translated but it's uh, I can look it up, mm-hmm. but it's a community that's outside of uh, of Chufu. Q U F U. Q U F U. Is that what you? Said? Yeah, that's it. Yeah, Q U F U is the city. So, so even and in Chinese, uh, a U comes after Q. Then that's. No, 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 no. Actually, not. I mean, the Q, Q is a uh, Pinyin, which mean which is C H. It's a C H sound. So whenever every whenever you see a, ch- a Q, it just means it's like C H. So like you have the word. Ching, which is Q I N G. Ching. It's pronounced Ching, but yeah, this is Chu Fu. Q U F U. used to be spelled differently, but yeah. Are, are there uh, only people from uh, China living there, or are there people from at other. At the moment, there's only Chinese people living there, so that would be an issue. You'd have to somehow get a, a Chinese uh, visa or some kind of residency, I guess. To, but then you'd be definitely welcome. <laughs> I'm sure. <laughs> okay, well, let's see. I guess we can podcast from I, anywhere. Yeah, I was thinking the same thing. I was thinking, gosh, it'd be great to live here. I mean, it was, it's such a such a nice energy, really. The people are so loving and it's so creative and such a positive spirit. That's one of the things I have to say. You know, being in in China, you know, somehow I I have this idea living here that oh gosh, China. Oh, it's a dictatorship. The people must be. It must be kind of this, you know, terrible, every kind of gray, you know. And it's just the opposite. I mean, the people are just very vivid, happy, laughing, creative, joyful people. I mean, for the most part, I think it's a very uplifting kind of spirit and energy. Of course, I was traveling mainly with vegans, but uh, but just in general, I think you know, there's a it's a there's um there's no reason for us to be. Uh, Beating war drums with these people—it's ridiculous, you know. They're—they're—they um, really want to have, I think, a, 
uh, a better life for everybody. And yeah, we should but be without the weapons, uh, how would we I make know, a living, right? right? Exactly. That's <laughs> what it comes down to. We have to have an enemy. Without an enemy, right. who we have how to would, have an enemy, right? Why do we need to have our weapons? You know, we, <laughs> <laughs> and and if right. yeah, we have to create an enemy and make up right. uh, all sorts of stories and, uh, and. But just tell people it's for democracy. We'll do anything. Just, hey, it's for <laughs> democracy. Okay, sign me up. You know, whatever, right, right, whatever that means. You know, so, right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, I think it's uh, you know the, the, really I think that that um, the vegan movement is the foundation of a healthy world, and if we want to have a better president and better senators and all that, we need to go vegan because how are we worthy of a better of 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 wise and compassionate leaders if we ourselves, as the people and the citizens, are paying people to stab and brutalize animals? I mean, we're not worthy of of these kinds of leaders you have to lead by going vegan i think that's the key so that's why i think spreading the vegan message is the most important thing anyone can do to actually improve our world i'm with you on that i seem to have uh, dedicated my life to it for some reason Great. it seems to have uh, right. take taken over my being i see it as the absolute yep. most important cause that that there is so uh, it is definitely. and uh, i i really appreciate uh, all that you do for it and you're just uh you know, a wonderful advocate for it. And uh, oh, I, I should mention, though, uh, Daisy wants me to mention a little concern about uh, the term plant based um, in a sense that I'm seeing people now saying that plant based doesn't necessarily mean um, excluding all animal products. And I'm seeing that uh, being said by uh, some chefs and uh, whatever. And then I see the people at Forks Over Knives are endorsing reducitarianism. And so, you know, like the word vegetarian probably meant vegan at one point. Um, I'm, I'm concerned about right, the term right. plant. I'm concerned about what, what plant-based actually even means, you know, to, to people like plant-based. Okay, I'll have a salad, but I can put some chicken on top of it or, you know, right. so I have my... Yeah, uh, yeah no, you have to my, say exclusively plant-based or something like that. Totally yeah. plant-based. 100% vegetarian, a glass of cow's milk and a piece of cheese and <laughs> cake. 100% vegetarian. No, 100% uh, vegetarian is vegetarian house, which is vegan. So, right, yeah, right. So. Yeah, that used to be like that. Like when I was at the farm in Tennessee, this guy said, I'm wearing vegetarian shoes, you know, and I was like, wow, there's no no leather, you know, that that was how it was used back then. But you know, like you say, the the words are always get uh, changed. But I think the main thing, I think I love the word vegan because it just says it what it is. You it know, is, this is, it is. It's my favorite word in the world. I I, I love it, and I it, it upsets me. Actually, that a lot of the so-called animal advocacy groups have moved away from it. They they have veg, you know, apostrophe and they they're they're saying right. vegetarian now. Um, now vegetarian house has been there a long time, and you know, like the San Francisco Vegetarian Society is a is a vegan right, right. society. But uh, you know, for animal advocacy right now, I think we have that that beautiful word, you know, the most beautiful of all words, vegan, and. Right. Uh, yeah, so there. Well, I guess. Uh, yeah, thank guess, you. Uh, yeah, Daisy's great. looking yeah. like okay. Let's let's get moving. Let's right. let's let's run to the park here. So, was there <laughs> anything else that you wanted to mention? Again, I should. No, I just. Uh, uh, yeah, thanks so much, Bob, and, and thanks everyone for listening. We look forward to seeing you if you can make it at the vegetarian house. 
uh, on Thursday the 11th in San Jose, and then after that we're heading down to San Luis Obispo and doing things there over the weekend, and then over to uh, San Diego and, and Florida. You can go to our website, worldpeacediet.com, if you want to see where we're going to be. We're doing a whole uh, lecture tour for two months and then and in February, January, February, and into March, and then also again in April in Southern California. So we're happy to come uh, to communities where people are to spread the vegan message, and people can uh, be in touch with us through our website. Terrific. Okay. Well, thanks for being with us again, Will. And uh, again, I recommend to everyone to go to Vegetarian House. It's this Thursday, the 11th, and uh, 6.30, video presentation and uh, appetizers, 7 o'clock lecture, 8 o'clock vegan buffet, and uh, it's only $20 in advance, 25 at the door. Uh, you can't beat that. The food at Vegetarian House is spectacular. The, the other thing is, like, what's more convincing than we do have the best food, Will? You know, I, I know, mean, it's that's, like... that's true. <laughs> the food itself will. The food uh, itself, we're foodies, feels, you know? I feels, mean, it's not, you're not eating does. cardboard or iceberg lettuce necessarily. It does. It really steals the deal. I'm telling you, vegan food is. I'm so lucky being married to Madeline. She's. Uh, I'm just really. It's great. The vegan food is amazingly delicious. It gets better every day. It, it, it's the best. <laughs> Save the world by eating the most delicious food. All right, right, right. <laughs> All right, well, thanks, Will. We'll talk again soon. Okay, thanks. Yeah, bye-bye.
talk to Dr. Will Tuttle. And remember, we have Dr. Mike Hudak coming up with mind-blowing climate change revelations. It's Go Vegan Radio with Bob Linden at GoVeganRadio.com. Visit our website. Please support us with a tax-deductible donation. You can also support us through Patreon. Um, All that info is at GoVeganRadio.com. And uh, I mentioned earlier in the program that uh, we are sponsored today by Health IQ. Health IQ uses science and data to secure lower rates on life insurance for health conscious people like runners, cyclists, weightlifters, strength trainers, yoga practitioners, and yes, vegans. Um, and you can uh, take, uh, take your Health IQ quiz at healthiq.com slash gvr check it out see if you qualify Um, get a quote on a rate Um, health iq can save customers up to 33 percent on life insurance now at the beginning of the program i was hoping that i would remember to give you the answers to our little vegan quiz our little Health IQ vegan quiz at the top of the show uh, where the question was um, who uh, there were two questions who has the lowest risk of type 2 diabetes meat eaters semi vegetarians pesco vegetarians lacto ovo vegetarians or vegans Um, Was that a softball question or what? This is data from uh, the Diabetes Care Journal. And so it was using those categories. I would never consider somebody who eats fish to be a vegetarian or somebody who eats uh, lactose or ovos. Um, But anyway, so of course the correct answer is vegan. The uh, lowest risk of type 2 diabetes vegans and how much lower is that risk of type 2 diabetes for vegans what do you think 49 percent 49 percent no wonder health iq works to give you lower rates huh it's uh quite uh, actually it, it it's uh, like a, a confirmation of everything i've been saying over the years that's why i'm i mean Really, when was the last time I was excited about uh, life insurance? Uh, I would say uh, never, never until now. Uh, But I feel like I'm really getting confirmation for what I've been saying on this program now for 17 years. All the studies that that we've covered uh, over time, all the data, and it turns out well, here's my confirmation, huh? Um, lower, lower rates for, for vegans. Um, and um, this is really important information for vegans with family obligations. I mean, uh, we're supposed to live longer, healthier, you know, we're, uh, but life happens, you know, so. Um, and by the way, Health IQ, this, this isn't a, a, a mom and pop starting starting up an operation here this is the fastest growing life insurance company now with over five billion dollars uh in coverage out there so um check it out at uh, healthiq.com 
slash GVR. Um, and um, I guess the, the phone number is on the website, and you can call. Give the, give the code GVR, okay? And um, also, Health IQ reduces your chances of being penalized for adverse family history if you are otherwise healthy. You know, so uh, you, you don't have to uh, be penalized for the family's past dietary habits. Huh? habits. Uh, so we see that the uh, uh, we're translating into savings now. Um, you're, uh, you know, you're, you're making the, the right choice. And uh, along comes a forward-thinking, innovative life insurance agency that rewards your good behavior. Uh, so uh, definitely check it out. Uh, go to the website, healthiq.com slash GVR. That is the code. And uh, let's see, what else did I want to tell you about it? I'm really like I'm, I'm so excited about life insurance. Can you believe this? So you get a free quote. Um, on life insurance you learn more at the website you can take the vegan quiz on the website and um, the health IQ advantage is its uh, unique mortality model it's based on health conscious living lower rates for the health conscious it's like uh, good driver savings on auto insurance it's a unique underwriting approach that's replacing the bmi with a waist to hip uh, ratio cholesterol calculations etc and uh, again um, i feel like it's just confirming everything i've been saying over the years and this is a must for vegans with family responsibilities, uh, check it out. Get get a quote. See if you qualify. Again, um, there are savings of up to thirty three percent on life insurance. So uh, definitely check it out. Again, uh, healthiq.com/gvr. We will continue on Go Vegan Radio with Bob Linden coming up with Mike Hudak and mind-blowing climate change revelations. This is Go Vegan Radio with Bob Linden at GoVeganRadio.com, on Twitter at GoVeganRadio, Facebook, Go Vegan Radio with Bob Linden, and we also have RadioBobby.com and RadioBobby pages on Facebook and Twitter, and you can support this program with a tax-deductible donation by finding the donate button at GoVeganRadio.com, and you can also subscribe via Patreon for as little as one one Illuminati bill per month um, or per episode. So when Go Vegan Radio with Bob Linden promises mind-blowing climate change revelations, this this isn't one of those clickbaiting uh, shows here. We deliver. Uh, actually, uh, it will be delivered 
those will be delivered today from Mike Hudak, PhD, who has been a guest on our program in the past. He is the author of Western Turf Wars, The Politics of Public Lands Ranching, and he has been active with the Sierra Club and its National Grazing Committee, although finding himself in opposition to the Sierra Club on numerous issues. He's the uh, founder and former director of a public lands project and the um, public lands without livestock. And uh, welcome back to Go Vegan Radio with Bob Linden. How are you, Mike? I'm fine, Bob. Thank you for having me. Thank you for writing what you call cattle grazing on federal public lands contributes to global climate change. So this is astonishing information, and so I'll just uh, let you uh, take it away and, uh, and, and fill us with, uh, with mind-blowing climate change revelations from your studies and research. Okay, Bob. Well, let me just g give you a, a little background. Um, what I've done recently is to update uh, this essay that I actually wrote back in early November 2008. And uh, uh, the reason that I wrote it then uh, was that I, I had begun to think about the problem of uh, cattle uh, impacting uh, global climate change. That's actually not uh, an issue that is traditional with people who want to get cattle off of public lands. The traditional reasons for getting cattle off public lands for many people who are environmentally minded is that um, they, they do not like seeing the cattle uh, damage and even destroy uh, habitat that uh, was normally occupied by free living animals. Uh, and, um, and, and a second reason might be uh, from more animal rights act uh, oriented people who uh, don't like to see cows suffer. Uh, you know, I've, I remember one range conservation guy, actually, who worked for the government. Uh, he was then retired and he said, you know, he said you'd really have to hate cows uh, to put them out on some of those public lands because of all the, the heat and the uh, drought and everything else. And in fact, uh, just um, a few days ago, I saw a posting by a Facebook friend of mine who'd been traveling, I think, on vacation out in Oregon. And um, he said uh, he, he literally saw cows uh, dying, you know, out on the, the landscape because of the heat. Heat's probably over 100 degrees Fahrenheit. So those are the main reasons that people have had for wanting to get cattle off the public lands. But in, you know, in the late 2000s, I began to think, gee, I wonder how much uh, greenhouse gases uh, these cows are contributing to global climate change. But one thing that I did not know was some estimate of how much methane a single cow would emit for some time period, like a day, a week, a month. And then one day in early 2008, I came back here and I was checking my email and uh, one of the activist listservs to which I've been subscribed called RangeNet. Uh, this was a listserv started uh, by a retired range conservationist from the Bureau of Land Management who was very concerned about um, 
the way that the government was managing these public lands and who himself wanted to see cattle uh, gotten off of these lands. He started this, this listserv and there's a companion uh, RangeNet website. And uh, so people would post um, uh, articles and other information to this uh, listserv. And I came back early November one day and I saw someone had posted a link to an article that had been published on a, uh, a pro cattle uh, industry website called the Cattle Site. And um, that uh, article cited some recent research that uh, actually gave some numbers to the amount of methane that uh, a cow typically uh, emits as a result of their digestion on a single day. And it was a range here of the amount of this methane, and it was between seven, 600 and 700 liters per day, which is a unit of uh, uh, volume. It's a metric uh, measure of volume. And so I thought, wow, you know, now that I know the volume of uh, that they, they emit on a given day, the rest of this calculation is really pretty simple arithmetic because of some other things I knew. And so I thought, well, okay, I'm not going to use the high-end value because uh, then the people from the, the cattle industry will say I'm using the most extreme value against them. Instead, I said, well, okay, I'll go with the lowest value, 600 liters of methane per day emitted by a cow. And uh, and then, as I said, the rest of it is just pretty simple arithmetic as, as long as you know a few things. Like, number one, you have to know how much forage the government says is being uh, consumed on the federal public lands. That information is very easy to obtain. You, there's a, a website from the U.S. Forest Service. There's a website for the Bureau of Land Management. And you can go to those sites and they will tell you how much forage is available for consumption uh, in the last um, uh, fiscal year, for instance. So you go in there and you get those numbers, and that forage is uh, uh, a ca categorized in terms of a concept that uh, has been developed called the animal unit month. Okay, And so that amount of forage that they give in terms of animal unit months, or AUMs as they call it, is supposedly the amount of forage, one AUM, one animal unit month, is the amount of forage that is supposed to be consumed by one cow and her suckling calf in one month, which they define as 31 days. Okay, so if we know that on average, at low end, a cow emits 600 liters of methane per day, then we know that in 31 days, just simple arithmetic of 31 days times 600 liters, and we know that in one month then of 31 days that a cow will emit 600 times 31, which is uh, 18,600 liters of methane. Well, okay, once we know that, then we just have to multiply that number by the total number of animal unit months that the government says is available 
And that number turns out on both the BLM and Forest Service lands comes out to 14,301,448 animal unit months. And again, now it's just simple arithmetic to multiply that number by the number of liters of methane emitted for each animal unit month. And we come up with this fairly large number here of 266,000,632,800 liters per year of methane. Wow. That, 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 that is, that's a really, that is a big number. Just tell, tell us once again, just okay, so what that represents. Give us that number and, and just say what that represents yeah. because, wow, yeah. that's a big number. It, it's 266 billion. 6,932,800 liters of methane emitted by all of the cattle on the public lands in one year. Wow. And it's probably a low figure for a couple of reasons. Number one, I said I was using the low value of the range given by this uh, research article. So it might, it might be, you know, mm -hmm. 20% higher than that, uh, just based on that research. But I'm gonna, I'm gonna go right, easy because, on because the. Because you said you said 600 liters uh, instead of 700 liters. You were that's right. The, but they gave the a range number. between six and 700. The other thing where it might be a low figure is that the assumption in terms of the forage consumption uh, from the government's viewpoint for an AUM, the assumption is that uh, the, it's only the mother cow which is eating and that her calf is suckling and not eating any forage. But in reality, I suspect that as the calf you know, grows, um, that it's probably going to be uh, uh, supplementing its mother's milk with some forage as well. And so the calf may also be consuming uh, some additional forage there, which maybe is sort of getting um, pushed under the rug by the government, okay? Um, so I'm saying this is probably, in all likelihood, uh, a low figure by maybe 20, 25%. But I, I can't prove that, but I suspect it is. Certainly so, not so a high... You're, you're, you're at about 266 billion plus. It could be 300 billion, right? It that, could be... Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Could be 300 billion, easily. Okay. 300 so, billion liters of methane liters. Uh, yeah. Yeah, released by uh, cows on, on public lands. Okay. Right. Yeah. So now I had to do a couple of additional steps in order to equate this number. Because, you know, who knows? What, what does that mean? You know, 266 billion. I mean, what does that mean in terms of anything else? You know, it doesn't really, you, you know, you just can't really uh, think, oh, yeah, that's equivalent to so many gallons of gasoline that's been burned or so many uh, miles driven by a car or coal fire power plants emitting carbon dioxide. So I had to convert it into a form that I could then compare to those other kinds of uh, sources of greenhouse gas. 
Well, it sounds and, like such oh, a high number. It, it almost sounds like a military budget at such a high yeah. number. You know what I mean? Yeah, so, yeah, but, yeah. Okay. Yeah, so, so, go ahead, go ahead. So, anyway, so then I just had to do a little bit more uh, arithmetic on this to get it into a form so I could uh, I could equate it in some way to those other types of uh, uh, sources that emit uh, greenhouse gases, particularly carbon dioxide. Now, here I'm working with methane. And there's a lot of different uh, greenhouse gases, you know, nitrous oxide and, and, as I said, methane and carbon dioxide and a few others as well. But um, uh, most, most of the climate scientists uh, work in terms of uh, carbon dioxide. So in other words, then, if you've got methane or if you've got nitrous oxide, you've got to find some way of converting it so that it, it, it makes sense in terms of what we know about carbon dioxide. Well, that turns out to be pretty easy, actually. But uh, first off, in order to do that, I've got to convert this volume. What I told you was a volume. It's liters, okay? I've got to convert it into mass. And can we, so... Can we picture these liters like the, the Coke or Pepsi bottle liters? I mean, would, would yeah. it be like two, 266 billion Coke liters or Pepsi liters yeah. that we're talking about? Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, you can do that. Uh, I don't even know what that would look like. Okay, I can't even picture that. Um, so, what, uh, in order... what Americans drink in one weekend, maybe, maybe that's. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, or, you know, that's or, an or, or hundred years. I don't know. <laughs> that's that's an interesting uh, idea, and that's another thing I could add to this paper um, to, to to actually look at you know how much soft drink is consumed, you know, in a year or something like that. Um, but I wasn't thinking that way at the time. I was thinking in terms of these other sources of greenhouse gases. And so I had to convert this, this volume into a mass. And um, there's a couple of things that affect uh, that kind of conversion. One of them is pressure and the other is temperature. So now you have to make some assumptions about the pressure and temperature under which that methane exists in order to make some estimate of how much mass it is. Because the less pressure, you know, the, the, the less dense the gas is going to be, and the higher the temperature, the more dense it's going to be. So we have to make some assumptions, and the assumption I made uh, was something I got off of a chemical industry website where they assumed um, uh, a, a barometric pressure equal to one atmosphere, which would be the pressure at sea level, basically, uh, and um, under conditions of uh, 59 degrees Fahrenheit. So uh, it's, that's probably um, a little bit lower uh, elevation than we really have, but I, I'm going to assume it's close enough uh, across the public lands to, to not matter too much. Uh, so then uh, once, once you've uh, taken those uh, conditions of uh, temperature and pressure into account, that 266 billion liters uh, equates to 180,884,714.3 kilograms of methane. Okay, well now we're, we're getting closer to being able to convert this into carbon dioxide. But I still have to do a conversion um, using something that is called a global warming potential 
which climate scientists have developed, which makes this kind of comparison uh, easy. And uh, and what it what it does is that uh, it, um, it 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 provides a number that allows one to uh, equate a given mass of methane or any other non-carbon dioxide uh, greenhouse gas, in fact, uh, but in this case, methane, how to equate a given mass of methane to the effects in the atmosphere of a given amount of carbon dioxide over uh, a given time period. And see, one of the problems here is that methane uh, does not have the same lifetime as carbon dioxide. It has a much shorter lifetime, uh, only about uh, 12 and a half years, whereas I think um, carbon dioxide can persist basically for hundreds of years. Uh, but during that 12 and a half years that it uh, exists, before it breaks down into carbon dioxide itself and some other things, uh, the methane has a much greater potential to trap um, uh, uh, you know, thermal energy than does carbon dioxide. And, um, and so that's where you get into uh, how do you actually do this comparison. And so the climate scientists had come up with a way, as I said, using this concept they call a, a global warming uh, potential. And, um, and so first you have to decide, well, what's the time period over which we are going to consider this impact of the methane? Traditionally, uh, the, the climate scientists and particularly the government agencies have focused on standardizing the time frame at 100 years, which uh, for some other greenhouse gases is reasonable, but uh, the, the thinking uh, nowadays among many people, including reputable climate scientists, is that it doesn't really, uh, it isn't really meaningful for methane because it has such a, a short lifetime compared to carbon dioxide, but it has a much, much greater impact. And that impact has, has become great, uh, more uh, known over the last uh, 15 years or so. Uh, I can tell you that back uh, around uh, 17 years ago, it was believed that the, the global warming potential of methane over a 100-year period was only about eight. And, and what this is saying is that um, a, a, a given mass of of methane is equivalent to um, uh, eight times uh, that mass of, um, uh, of carbon dioxide uh, over a 100-year period. Uh, but now, uh, 17 years later, that value of eight has been found to be way, way too low. And so the internationally accepted value now is 34. So it's you know, that's, there's no, nothing nefarious about that. It's just that the research has moved on and, and found that the methane is much more potent at trapping uh, radiant energy uh, than was believed to have been the case uh, 17 years ago. So, uh, and another factor... So that, num it, that, number, that number 34, again, represents what? That methane is 34 times 
uh, more potent than than carbon dioxide in trapping greenhouse um, gases? Uh, basically, it... basically over over a one hundred year period. Over a hundred year period. Okay. Yeah. But the thing is, is what, what a lot of climate scientists are, are saying now, including a guy by the name of um, uh, Robert Howarth, or Howarth, is that, you know, if we're really uh, serious about, um, you know, getting, a, getting this uh, global climate change under control in the short term, we really need to pay attention to what uh, methane does in the short term rather than, you know, 80 years out. We need to think about what it's doing today and in the next 10 or 15 years. And so that's why he's saying it, it makes more sense to focus on a 20-year period of the impact rather than a 100-year period. And when you do that, the current scientific consensus for the global warming potential of methane is 86, okay? So what it's saying then um, that, um, that uh, a given mass of, C, uh, of methane would have the same effect in the global climate system as a mass of CO2 that is 86 times greater than that mass of methane. That's so, pretty mind-blowing. That's, yeah. that's a mind-blowing yeah. fact you have there. Yeah, yeah. Mind-blowing so, calculation. So, so again, as I said, and I'll tell you, the calculation of these global warming potentials is, is mind-boggling in itself. You know, I've looked at some of these papers that do it, and they have all these differential equations and everything, and man, it's like, you know, I, I, I can't go near that stuff. Uh, and I'm, I have I'm to following your math. I'm, I'm, I'm yeah. enjoying. Yeah, well, I'm, I went to a math and science high school and thought, what am I doing here? Uh, you know, but uh, I'm, I'm, I'm enjoying your math lesson here. I really am. Yeah. Well, well, in terms of the actual math, I mean, this is like fifth grade arithmetic. But, <laughs> no, uh, but, but, no wonder I'm enjoying it. Okay. <laughs> but but I have to tell you that that calcul you know the, the the calculation of these global warming potentials you know is probably like you know graduate school mathematics. Okay, I, I'm an undergraduate uh, math major. Okay, and I never even saw anything like this. So uh, I don't even want to get into how they calculate those global warming potentials. But I can just take the number. I understand basically what it means and take the number. Now I have to tell you something else, though. There is a paper that came out. I think just in March, uh, another peer-reviewed paper by climate scientists who say that even the value that we're currently using for uh, the global warming potential of methane for 20 years of 86 that it's too low they've they've done some more research on it and these guys are saying it really should be not 86 but 96 <laughs> okay wow. i'm not i'm not using that number yet it's not accepted by the united nations uh, but I wouldn't be surprised, you know, in a couple of years, I may update this essay again and just run the math through using a value of 96 instead of 86. And, and then the numbers will look even worse for and, the and use, the, use the 700 liters that time. Yeah. On, let's, let's, <laughs> let's go for it. So, yeah. Uh, so, so me, okay, so, so where, where are we now? We, we've come okay, up to a figure so, of, of 86. So, so, yeah, so, so I, I, I have the, uh, the mass here of this um, of this methane uh, as I said it comes out to 180 million kilograms and now in order to get the uh, the uh, effect of uh, the equivalent amount of carbon dioxide in the global climate system 
we just have to multiply that number by 86. And we'll get the effect of that amount of methane equivalent to uh, carbon dioxide over a 20-year period. And, and, and that amount of methane, we're, we're talking about the uh, 266 uh, billion liters. We're talking about the methane released by cattle, uh, so-called cattle grazing on uh, U.S. federal lands. Yes. So, okay, so I, I, I do that multiplication, and now what we do is come up with something that's called uh, carbon dioxide equivalence. Okay, so in other words, that amount of methane is actually equal to, I think, 15 trillion, 588 billion, 85 million, 400, no, I'm, I'm off by one, uh, 15, what is it, 15, uh, 15 billion, 556 million, 85,430 kilograms of carbon dioxide. Okay, so yeah, that, that sounds like a lot. I I, w I wish I could picture the metric system. Can you uh, <laughs> can you tell me how many Olympic swimming pools? No, <laughs> no, no. <laughs> no, well, no. Well, it's all in you know. I I mean, we could convert it to pounds, but um, but I didn't even bother doing that because everybody, you know, all these scientists use the metric system. So I know, and I, uh, I'm still I'm still stuck on 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 feet and inches and, and pounds yeah. myself. So yeah. I, but uh, yeah. okay, so. All right, but so, I, uh, a kilogram ahead. is, I think a kilogram is like, I don't know what, 2.2 pounds, something like that. And, right. um, you know, so, you know, it's probably 2 .2 like... 2.2 pounds, and you're talking about 15 and a half billion, billion. Uh, uh, a kil kilograms. So, you know, so that's that was like, like you know, 30, 40 billion pounds or something. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so so once we've got that number, like I said, 15 and a half billion kilograms of what's known as carbon dioxide equivalents, then I can just go to the uh, Environmental Protection Agency's uh, website, and they have um, a, a, an a CO2 equivalent calculator, which anyone can uh, can uh, uh, access. And uh, and come up with some interesting equivalences for the amount of of whatever your source of uh, methane or, or once now it's converted into carbon dioxide equivalents, uh, you know what is equivalent to your source of of uh, greenhouse gas. And so that's all I did. Now one of the reasons that I wanted to update this essay was that uh, I had discovered a few months ago that the Environmental Protection Agency had updated. Uh, some of these equivalences. And, and uh, this is nothing nefarious. It wasn't even done under the Trump administration. It was done about a year ago under Obama, but I just hadn't paid attention. And so uh, it, the point is, is that the numbers that I had in there in my essay from several years ago, if someone had actually gone to the EPA website and actually worked the calculations through, they would have gotten different numbers than what I had in my essay. So that was another good reason to go back and, and just recompute these things. So I can tell you then what um, has now, uh, what the Environmental Protection Agency says are some of the sources of greenhouse gas that are equivalent, uh, at least over a 20 year period, to the amount of methane that is emitted by these public uh, lands cattle. 
And so, for instance, um, the the methane emissions are e equivalent over 20 years to the annual greenhouse gas emissions from 3,288,813 passenger vehicles. Wow. Okay. So they're making some assumptions here about how far the average passenger vehicle is driven in a year and how much, the, what is the fuel efficiency and so on. So there's all kinds of assumptions that the EPA relies upon there, which if anybody interested is interested in that, they can go to the website by the EPA and, and look at what all those assumptions are. Okay. So, so uh, we're saying that the annual greenhouse gas emissions from yeah. so-called uh, cattle on federal public lands uh, are equivalent to 3,288,813 passenger vehicles. Right? Yeah. So that's, that's, yeah. that's, that's your first Shocking that's right. Comparison. That's right. That's, that's, yeah, that's yeah. Quite amazing. Quite amazing. Um, they also looked at um, the amount of carbon that would be sequestered uh, by tree seedlings grown for ten years, and uh, so the EPA says that the amount of of uh, greenhouse gas emitted by the uh, cows uh, is equivalent to the amount of carbon that is sequestered by 398,873,984 tree seedlings grown for 10 years. Okay, so this is, these are trees that are sucking uh, greenhouse gas out of the atmosphere. So again, this is, this is amazing because people think, well, you know, to, to, to fight global warming, to fight, to fight climate change, we have to plant trees, right? And yeah, we're, right. Say, we're saying now, that the uh, <laughs> you know instead it's instead of planting three hundred ninety eight thousand uh, eight hundred seventy three million trees uh, grown for ten years, uh, if we were to go vegan and not have any demand for uh, you know the, the the products from so called livestock on federal lands, it's the I mean. It seems so much easier to go vegan than plant that many trees and, and wait for their effect over ten years. But okay, yes. I'm 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 I'm, continu I'm I'm continuing to be shocked like more and more as you go along here, Mike. Okay, well then another thing they look at here is sequestering uh, of atmosphere carbon by um, uh, mature trees. And, uh, and so they, they look at the uh, uh, carbon sequestered uh, by um, trees on uh, U.S. forests, and they, they say that the amount of carbon sequestered by trees on 14,675,552 acres of United States forests um, is equivalent to the amount of uh, greenhouse gas em emitted by the cows on uh, the public lands, and um, mind blowing. Go ahead. Yeah. And Go ahead. and 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 then they also look at um, the amount of carbon sequestered from the atmosphere uh, that it would be uh, saved by preserving forest rather than converting it to cropland. Okay, and so they say that the amount of of methane coming out of these cattle is equivalent to not 
uh, converting 123,992 acres of forest to cropland. That's a little bit harder to get one's head around, but it, the, the basic idea is, is that um, uh, leaving forest alone rather than turning it into pasture or cropland is really a very effective way at sequestering atmospheric carbon. And um, so, um, but as I said, that's a little bit harder to get one's head around. Mm -hmm. Then the, the next thing. So, so by a, the way, you're, you're talking about what, what people are telling us, you know, they're, they're, they're pushing grass-fed beef and, and, and all. And, and this, is, uh, this is not the sustainable way, grass-fed. Look, look, I mean, this is grass-fed, right? This is. A, uh, yeah, in about? effect. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it is. And, and um, but, you know, that whole matter um, gets into another issue, which I don't discuss in this little essay, but I do in another one that I updated last week. Maybe we can talk about that if we've got a few minutes, uh, because those people, when they're talking about grass-fed beef, they're, they're often trying to justify the raising of the cattle in terms of the land, the, the pasture, the grassland upon which those cattle are grazing as a, um, a, 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 a sink, in effect, for atmospheric carbon. And what those proponents of grass-fed beef are saying, among other things, is that the, um, the, the cattle grazing on those lands is um, uh, either essential or speeding up the process by which the ground under their feet is sequestering atmospheric carbon. And um, although there's some truth to that claim, and I say some, you have to qualify it, what, they, what these people often ignore is the amount of the methane that the cattle are emitting. Okay? And uh, in order to get those numbers to ban, sometimes they just ignore the, the methane altogether. Sometimes, though, they'll, they'll acknowledge the methane, but they'll do some kind of funny math, and I can talk about that, in order to get the, um, the, 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 the amount of uh, methane being emitted somehow equal to the amount of carbon dioxide being absorbed. And, um, uh, but I don't even go into that in this paper. I, I'm, I'm assuming here that the, the ground is really in pretty bad shape. It's not emitting much. It's not sequestering much uh, carbon uh, from the atmosphere. And we can just ignore that for now and just focus on what the cattle themselves are, um, are emitting into the atmosphere. So the, what, what, the, what the EPA website then also has are a bunch of, of um, uh, other sources of carbon dioxide. Uh, emissions and uh, and so we can look at the equivalence of those to the um, uh, uh, car methane converted to carbon dioxide equivalents uh, by the cattle and so for instance um, uh, they, the government uh, allows us to do an equivalence to uh, a number of gallons of gasoline which have been burned and they say well that the, that number of gallons is uh, one um, one billion seven hundred fifty million four hundred thirty one thousand five hundred seventy one gallons of gasoline. That's wow. that's the that's the equivalent 
burning that uh, results in carbon dioxide that is equivalent to the methane emissions uh, from the cattle on the public lands. Okay. Wow. One, um, that's one billion seven hundred fifty million gallons of gasoline. Look, that uh, let's let's not burn that. Let's not uh, you know we we all need to go vegan and not have any consumer demand for uh, cows and. You know their products on, on public lands, and and this is just, I mean, and and this we're just talking about on on federal public lands, the 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 impact on climate change. We're not even considering everything else. This is completely amazing, just from who was on the the public lands. That's right, and and you know I think I've said uh, other times on your show that the amount of beef that comes off of these public lands in terms of just uh, weight okay now they can be looked at in terms of weight gain of the animals while they're on the public lands only amounts to about three percent of the beef produced in the United States okay only about three percent so you got ninety seven percent of the beef produced in the US somewhere other than these public lands so, so, so there are enormous numbers out there. Oh, it's huge! It's huge. <laughs> well, and, well, we are told that climate, you know, that animal agriculture is the number one cause of climate change, and uh, so there, there have to be huge numbers somewhere, and, uh, and you sure have some of them right here. Yeah, yeah. I mean, even these are 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 very big, uh, but as again, as I said, this only represents about three percent of the U.S. Right. production. So. You know, you consider how much we're we're producing of these greenhouse gases for all the rest of the beef production in the United States. Um, so these, as I these said, are minuscule numbers when we're talking about uh, a billion seven hundred fifty thousand gallons of gasoline. These are minuscule compared to the animal agriculture, you know, in general. That's right. But as I said, you know, the people who want the cows off public lands have traditionally. And by traditionally, I mean going back to the 1980s, the 1970s, their main concern was about the, the, the habitat for the free living animals that was being degraded and destroyed uh, by the ranching. And that was their main motivation. And of course, that's the tradition that I grew up in here. And so, um, you know, I, I looked at this issue of, of cattle production from the viewpoint of the public lands. And of course, there's you know, the, the, because they're public, the idea has always been that um, the, a, a, any U.S. citizen has some say in the management of these lands. In theory, that's true. And, uh, and people can complain to the agencies about how these lands are being managed. That's true. Um, but, of course, what people have discovered over the last uh, few decades is that the agencies pretty much don't care. What individuals uh, think about that matter? Um, to the to the extent that the government agencies have cared, it's because there have arisen uh, several um, environmental organizations which have sued them, have sued the government uh, because of its violation of various environmental laws, such as the Endangered Species Act uh, or the the National Environmental Policy Act, or something like that. Um, and so they've been able to get some traction 
on this issue to try to cut this this um, uh, practice of public lands ranching back a little bit. But um, but we certainly have not made the the gains in in reducing it that uh, we had hoped uh, when I started on this issue 20 years ago. But um, but anyway, I can continue here with uh, yeah. some of these equivalents. There, there are more. Um, yeah, sure. Let's uh, let's have uh, these, I, these mind blowing equivalents. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I got a few more here. I don't know that I'll read all of them, but as I, I, I read the one here about 1.7 billion gallons of gasoline. Um, we they, the, the EPA also gives us an equivalence to barrels of oil, which have been burned. Uh, in one way or another, and they say that's equivalent to 36,176,942 barrels of oil consumed. Uh, they compare it to the electricity use uh, for one year of 2,297,118 homes. They, um, they look at the um, uh, total uh, uh, well, let's see. Here's another one. Burning of uh, coal. Burning of coal. What does this come down to? 16 uh, billion, 602 million, 12,166 pounds of coal. Wow. Uh, and that, that, That's uh, staggering because everybody, you know, all the environmentalists are against those, those coal burning plants and we're against coal and yet we have the methane equivalent uh, of uh, just just from the the, the releases from uh, so-called cattle on federal public lands, the equivalent yeah. of burning sixteen billion six hundred two thousand pounds of coal. This is this is the the impact on climate change just from now. Yeah. How 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 would we how would we remove? Uh, the cows, uh, so-called cow, yeah, the, well, they, they are cows. They're called cows, but they're so-called cows yes. from from public lands. I mean, we we can't we can't chase the ranchers off, huh? They have guns or whatever, isn't it? Uh, right. Do we do we have to go vegan so there's no demand for any of these uh, agricultural products? I mean, well, I ideally, that that would be you know that would be the way you know ideally to do it because we don't want just this public lands ranching to go away. We want all of it. But if, if you want public land, well, I mean, you know, it's a complicated issue. And, and, and I, I have to say that uh, because of the way that this uh, practice is structured, that it is actually pretty resistant to consumer um, uh, demand or lack thereof. Because it is, and here's, and I'll, I'll tell you why. I mean, I, if you really want to take talk about this for a minute, um, I mean, I would, you know, no one, I think, wants to get rid of public lands ranching more than I do. Uh, I mean, one way to, to get rid of these cows or and and and, uh, and the whole practice of ranching is to offer the ranchers uh, money uh, to uh, get their cows off of the public lands. In fact, I'm actually a co-author of federal legislation, which has been in the Congress and the House of Representatives since 2011. It was introduced by Congressman Adam Smith from Washington State. And um, uh, that legislation would provide a legal mechanism by which a rancher could, <clears throat> could um, demand 
from the agency that they lease uh, uh, an allotment to graze their cattle. They can demand that the agency retires uh, their grazing allotment. Now, currently, a rancher cannot do that. Okay, if a rancher wants to relinquish his or her grazing allotment, the agency will allow the person, the rancher, to do this. But in all likelihood, the agency will simply reissue the grazing permit and the associated allotment to another rancher. Okay, so our legislation would actually prevent the uh, the agency, whether the Bureau of Land Management or the Forest Service, from reissuing the grazing permit and the uh, allotment. Okay, now um, the um, the legislation as we've written it does not provide any government uh, funding to compensate the rancher for for relinquishing the permit. Uh, there was legislation originally in the uh, U.S. House of Representatives uh, back uh, before I got involved in, in trying to get legislation in there. There was legislation in 2003 and again, I think in 2006, that actually would have, um, uh, uh, it, it had a, a budget uh, of government money to buy, uh, to offer to these ranchers. But that became uh, politically uh, infeasible after a while. And so we said, okay, well, let's not um, get the government involved uh, as part of a trial program um, in terms of offering money to ranchers. Let's just have the legal mechanism by which the rancher can uh, demand that the government uh, retire the permit and allotment. And we'll simply raise the money for now from private sources you know, wealthy guys, you know, Microsoft millionaires or foundations or whatever. And uh, and uh, first offer it to the rancher. A lot of ranchers would like to get off uh, and um, and uh, you offer them enough money and they will. And then they'll, you know, if we, have, if we have that legislation in place, then they can tell the agency to close down the allotment. Um, uh, some of those types of deals have been done privately. You know, I could probably tell you about a dozen or more of those that have been done over the last uh, 20 years, but they are very cumbersome uh, to uh, to engineer. Okay, you you have to usually get the local congressman of the rancher involved, maybe the federal senator or senators from the state that the rancher's in. You got to get the agency uh, roped into it, whether it's the Forest Service or BLM, and if you've got any of these. Uh, agencies or the, the the local congressional representative, you know, opposed to it, it can it can just stop the whole thing. Whereas our legislation would would take uh, discretion out of the hands of the politicians and out of the hands of the agencies, and just say, look, if the rancher tells you he wants it retired, you have to retire it. So that legislation uh, is supposed to be uh, reintroduced uh, soon by Congressman Adam Smith. Uh, he introduced it at the last time in uh, July of 2015, and I've, I've heard that he's going to reintroduce it again. I hope he introduces it before the congressional recess. But frankly, uh, over the years, the, the politics of this whole issue have become worse and worse. You know, it was difficult enough to deal with this issue when we had Democratic control of the Congress. 
now that we have Republican control, uh, the, the reality is that uh, that legislation is not even going to get a hearing uh, because there's such an anti-environmental bias now in, in the Congress. So, uh, so that's not going to go anywhere anytime soon. There may be still some individual uh, buyouts that will take place. Uh, but um, you never know when a rancher is going to express interest in doing that. Uh, the if other we thing is get them talk- all to switch over to growing uh, organic or veganic fruits and vegetables, which is what everyone wants yep. anyway. There's a huge surge in the vegan population, and vegetables are the number one consumed food item around the world. So maybe if we could just subsidize well, that, <laughs> maybe. Uh, I have to tell you, a lot of these uh, grazing allotments are in really awful uh, places, uh, especially now with global warming. Uh, as I said, I, I, this Facebook friend of mine just a few weeks ago said he saw cows uh, dying on public lands out in uh, Oregon. And, um, and, and so, uh, you know, you really could not grow anything uh, even on private land very easily there without a lot of irrigation. And even then, I, I don't know uh, how well, uh, you know, fruits and vegetables would grow. Um, I mean, what may actually put a lot of these ranchers out of business is just what I said. Uh, global climate change, uh, increased temperatures. You know, we're seeing temperatures in southern Arizona recently, 119 degrees. Um, you know, cattle cannot survive in those kinds of temperatures. There's going to be very little forage available also. and and so we may see uh, ranchers uh, really going out of business just for that reason alone, if nothing else, regardless of what environmentalists do or consumers or anything else. It's just the, the weather is just going to be too much, uh, too hot, too dry for these animals to survive out there. Yeah, what goes around uh, comes around. If uh, they're causing the climate change, climate change is uh, going to shut them down. I, I saw one more equivalent that you had. Uh, the, oh, yeah. The, okay. Well, uh, yes, that's right. a couple right. more. <laughs> a couple more. Um, yeah, another one that I probably uh, is, is um, uh, a good one to, to do the equivalence with is, is um, coal-fired power plants. And um, everybody so, hates everybody hates coal-fired power plants. Everybody's yeah. against coal. So, that's right. yeah, In fact, Ooh, uh, coal, yeah. You mentioned the Sierra Club before. You know, the Sierra Club has about, I don't know, five or six or seven national campaigns. And, and one of those campaigns is called the Beyond Coal campaign. So they, they've got, you know, hundreds of staff people around the country working with uh, students on college campuses and in communities and whatever to switch over coal-fired heating plants and power plants to natural gas and so on. And... Um, and, uh, and so, yeah, you know, but uh, the, the club, in, in a way, can't, can't uh, seem to give up its, its uh, love for, um, uh, for uh, uh, beef production to any great extent. Um, yeah, of course, we did, we did get the grazing policy changed back in 2000, 17 years ago. And so they do support getting the cows off the public lands. But really, in terms of beef production in general... Uh, the club is really kind of um, uh, uh, not so uh, uh, 
not not so forceful about wanting to end it. In fact, uh, not 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 so environmentally oriented. That, that's right. In fact, this other paper uh, that I that I revised last week, uh, where I critiqued um, one of the articles that is always uh, brought up by these people in what's now known as regenerative farming. I don't know if you've heard that term, Bob, uh, but it's a, it's a good term to know because that's what these uh, cow promoters particularly are, are calling themselves now. This is even like broader than just holistic management. It's regenerative farming. And the idea being that you can raise cattle and that by the cattle being on pasture, they will so significantly increase the rate at which that pasture is sequestering carbon from the atmosphere that you know we'll just all be saved from from global climate change is that and, the uh, alan savory crowd he's uh, very uh, it, it it's it, it's in part but i think it's even bigger than that now it's it, they're, they're, they don't they, they i think it may have come out of of the the kind of alan savory uh, circle so to speak but um you know alan uh, savory has been taking a lot of knocks um, over the years, and some of these people don't really want to just associate with them themselves with him because of that. So it, it seems to be a broader term, okay, to call it regenerative grazing, and um, because holistic management is really like a product that Alan Savory sells, okay. It's like a consulting service that 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 he'll sell, okay. So. Uh, this is this is supposedly broader than that, not associated to you know his his uh, business. Um, but uh, but that's uh, that other paper uh, deals with uh, with that kind of carbon sequestration. And and just to tie it back to the Sierra Club, two and a half years ago, the Sierra Club was uh, revising its uh, agriculture policy, and they'd put together a committee. Uh, consisting um, mostly of people who were very pro-animal agriculture. And they were pushing this stuff, as I said, called regenerative grazing uh, or regenerative farming. And, um, and I was no longer a member of the Sierra Club, but my good friend Todd Schumann uh, was. And in fact, he was on the grazing team that I had chaired for five years. You know Todd. He spoke at your conference last year. Right. He's and, been on the show. Yeah. Yeah. He's been on the show, too. And um, and so he was following this and uh, and you saying, man, you know, we need to really critique the uh, art, the scientific peer reviewed articles that these regenerative uh, farming people are citing to justify grazing these cattle. So, you know, he contacted me and said, hey, would you look take a look at this one paper? And I think he took a look at some others. And so I went through this, and uh, because I had written this other paper, which we've just spent the last um, you know half hour or so on, uh, I I was you know pretty good at thinking, oh yeah, well yeah, I I know about how much methane these cows emit, and this other paper that was being used by these regenerative uh, farming people, yeah, it looked at how much uh, carbon was being sequestered by the soil, but it completely ignored the methane that was being emitted by the cattle uh, in the experiments. And I said, whoa, you know, I need to do that calculation. And they gave enough information in that article in terms of how long per year these cattle were grazing, 
uh, on the land and how many cattle there were. And then I could make the same kind of assumptions about how much methane these cattle were emitting every day. And after that, it was just simple arithmetic and then using, uh, you know, my 20 year global warming potential. And I could figure out how much uh, carbon dioxide equivalents these cattle were emitting during the course of this experiment. And then I could balance that against the um, amount of carbon from the atmosphere that the pasture was uh, absorbing or sequestering. And, and when, you, when you look at the amount of methane that those cows were emitting, um, man, it was, it was huge compared to the amount that the soil was sequestering. And, um, and, uh, whenever there's, a, when, whenever there's a study uh, by the uh, animal agriculture industries, uh, they, they seem to omit certain things and use, you know, strange calculations, which I think was the case with Livestock's Long Shadow from the FAO, which is the Food and Agriculture Organization of the UN, which is part of the livestock industry. So uh, we had uh, Robert Goodland and Jeff Anhang. Uh, analyze livestock's long shadow, and uh, you know there 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 was a lot to be changed, a lot you know a lot to be updated, a lot a lot of omissions, a lot of num you know old numbers used uh, by the livestock industry to to make a case for sustainability, which it really can't make, you know. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. But you know, and so here, so so anyway, the, you know, the the Sierra Club had this committee which was uh, coming up with recommendations for how they should revise their agriculture policy in, in support of uh, you know, cattle grazing. And, and so I took like one of their main uh, scientific articles and, and did this additional calculation here in regard to the amount of methane that these cows were emitting. And, and what I found was that um, uh, even uh, with, uh, with the, 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 the data that they had um, accumulated in terms of the sequestration of the soil, that um, even on a, a per hectare basis, again, we're in the metric realm here, a hectare is a piece of ground that's uh, 10,000 square meters. So a meter is just a little bit, or a meter is a little bit more than three feet. So it's... Um, it's not a very big area, but uh, they they used what they considered to be a low uh, cattle density on there of about less than six uh, steers per hectare, and it turned out that just um, uh, six steers grazing on a hectare over the length of time in the year that they conducted uh, these experiments, that it was equivalent the methane emitted by these animals was equivalent to uh, 31 burning 31 barrels of oil uh, or burning 14,370 pounds of coal or driving an average passenger vehicle 32,300 miles okay and this is just from like less than six steers grazing on one hectare of land over about two-thirds of a year okay and that's taking into account the sequestering of the carbon from the atmosphere 
by the soil under the cattle's feet. And this is what the Sierra Club was using to justify grazing cattle, okay? Um, and, 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 and this is even more you know, mind-boggling. Um, the, the people who wrote that study, they were a couple of United States Department of Agriculture scientists. They said, well, you know, look at, uh, we found that by grazing the cattle here in, in, in light grazing, as they called it, rather than heavy grazing, which actually turned out to have the soil sequester less carbon than light grazing. So they said light grazing is the way to go, but it still is sequestering the carbon from the atmosphere at a faster rate than if there's no cows there. Well, that may be true, but then again, if you don't have any cows there, you're not getting all this methane into the atmosphere either. So uh, the, the real problem is the cows emitting the, the methane, not so much the rate at which the soil is sequestering the uh, carbon. Because frankly, I have found other studies, which I cite in this other uh, study here, uh, showing uh, that even if you have no cows on a pasture, that the, 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 the grasses will sequester carbon uh, from the atmosphere perfectly fine. Maybe not quite as fast as if the cows are there grazing very lightly. Maybe not quite as fast, but they will they will uh, continue to sequester carbon from the atmosphere, and you won't have all that methane pollution from the cows if you don't have cows there. So the, the point is, is that these, guys, these USDA scientists who did this study and said, wow, look how great this, uh, this uh, uh, light intensity uh, grazing is, we could replicate this across the entire uh, uh, eastern and southeastern uh, states uh, on... Uh, on, um, I don't know how many, 13.8 uh, mega hectares uh, that's, uh, of land, if you, if you actually replicated what they found in their little test plots over that whole area of 13.8 um, mega hectares, the, 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 the pollution equivalent would be equivalent to the CO2 pollution, carbon dioxide pollution from 54 coal-fired power plants. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's what's really mind-boggling to me. 54 coal-fired power plants. And this is supposed to be, you know, uh, a great uh, uh, advance here, saying, oh, yeah, we'll use this light grazing rather than heavy grazing, and, you'll, and the soil will sequester all of this carbon from the atmosphere. Wow, we are saved. Yeah, but, but the methane from the cows is equivalent to, you know, even after you subtract off what the soil is sequestering, you, you got the equivalent of 54 coal-fired power plants. <laughs> Unbelievable. And yeah. Um, so, so, yeah, and, and all, those of us who are, you know, all, always protesting against coal and all, um, there, we, we didn't say how many, um, how many coal-fired uh, coal power plants uh, would be the equivalent of the original methane released by all cows on federal lands, right? We had that, uh, we had that one. That's only four and a half. That's only four and a half. Oh, that's only four and a half. Four and a half coal-fired yeah. uh, coal, coal power plants for one year. So, yeah. But, but I mean, who, who wouldn't want to shut down four and a half uh, coal-fired power plants for a year? And yet that's, that's right. the equivalent of the methane from all the cows on uh, public lands. Yeah, yeah. But here's the other thing, Bob. 
you know, I wrote this essay, and um, and uh, Todd Schumann got it to the Sierra Club, and they just completely ignored it. And you know, they ignored a lot of the stuff that the grazing team submitted by other people who were on the team, and and they wrote their pro agriculture uh, 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 agriculture policy, you know, and and that's what they got. So, you know. These 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 organizations, you know, they really do what they want to do, and 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 they'll they'll cite the science that supports what they want to do, and and they'll ignore you know other stuff. And so, so um, basically, the environmental groups are all involved with uh, destroying the environment now by not really being honest with the public in terms of uh, the impact of animal agriculture on climate change and the uh, vegan solution. So uh, we apparently have to take it into our own hands and uh, we, we all have to go we all have to go vegan because what else would will stop the demand uh, for meat dairy fish and eggs you know at, at this rate if we if we can't even have the Sierra Club on our side or 350.org or NRDC or Greenpeace uh, it's it's up to us it's the apparently the the individual action and uh, you know, just look at what you're saying about uh, so-called grass-fed beef on public lands. It's uh, it's it's mind-boggling. It's it's really pretty amazing. So, um, so and so we, we we're talking to Mike Kudak, uh, Ph.D. And so, anything else that we haven't gotten to that uh, you still wanted to cover or mention or examine? Um, no, that, that's pretty much it. Um... Yeah, I uh, I mean, there's still some things going on in the Sierra Club that uh, I know, you know, as I said, that the, the club had adopted that policy about two and a half years ago, not quite two and a half years ago, and they still haven't uh, acted on it, okay? I've, I've heard some rumors that um, there are people in the Sierra Club who, who would like to actually build some kind of a campaign um, around... Um, that agriculture policy that would be, you know, pr promoting so-called sustainably raised uh, beef and uh, and other uh, types of meat products, uh, that uh, that so far has not gone anywhere. Uh, but um, but I, I know that they had some money to do a, a, a like a feasibility study for the campaign and so on and and. Uh, uh, you know, we'll just have to watch that. Uh, you know, maybe uh, it, things are kind of quiet right now because it's summer and people are on vacation and there's no more uh, national board meetings of the club until September. Uh, but we'll just have to watch that. Uh, you, you may recall, uh, when was it, back in, in March, that there was um, uh, some controversial articles uh, published in Sierra Magazine uh, one of them by um, the um, uh, editor uh, of the magazine. What was his name? Jason Marks, uh, trying to uh, create a, a write a, an ethical argument for uh, eating uh, uh, meat and uh, other animal products. We, we that discussed that on we discussed this uh, that on the, this show, and uh, I, I I haven't seen sillier gibberish in. Uh, all my life, yeah. to tell you the truth. Really? From, from, yeah. yeah. Was, uh, um, and, and and there was a lot of criticism, if you looked on uh, the web, uh, uh, about I, I that. Would, I would uh, hope so. I would hope so. Yeah. Um, 
and and you know but they did run uh they did run um uh, essays on the other side too they had you know there's there's at least two vegan two vegan board members um on the national on the 15 member national board of the sierra club one of them is uh steve ma the other one is liz walsh and uh steve ma wrote a kind of a counter uh essay uh to the one by um uh, mr marks and i thought that was very good i i I don't know if you saw that, um, but um, you know Steve Steve Ma. I don't know how much uh, visibility you know he wants to have um, uh, because of his position on the Sierra Club board. But he'd he'd be a good guy, I think, to have on your show if he'd agree to do it. Yeah, I think um, I to, I think I tried to contact him and I didn't I didn't get a response uh, back then. Yeah, uh, the, yeah. At the time, so, so. I don't know, but yeah. I, I I've never communicated with Steve Ma, but I uh, I like what he wrote. And uh, I know people who know him, and they say he's a good guy. So um, yeah. uh, well, there, you know, there you had the the editor of Sierra Magazine saying, you know, I have no problem with killing animals. Now, wouldn't it be great if there were an editor of a Sierra Club magazine who had a problem with killing animals? I mean, is there, you know, I mean, uh, is is there anything wrong with being pro animal if you're an environmentalist? You know, I mean, it's really, uh, I don't know. It's just yeah. it's these these meat eating meat dairy fish and egg eating environmentalists really uh, you know drive me up the wall basically so and then the yeah. other thing uh, that I saw in, uh, from the Sierra Club uh, uh, prior to that was uh, some sort of article about the most sustainable meats that you can eat which you know has, yeah. re really meat is is not sustainable I mean when right. look at resource resource depletion and usage and water and land and feed right. and everything you know it's all I think it's all PR it's all propaganda mm. you know? yeah so, so, yeah so, so anyway so so Mike this uh, this this essay that you wrote uh, cattle grazing on federal public lands contributes to global climate change which we discussed today um, how, how could people get a hold of it I think it would be a, a wonderful mm -hmm. resource for people to have and, uh, sure. and your follow-up essay yeah, well, I installed it on my website. So if you just go to mikehudak.com, it's just uh, my name, M-I-K-E-H-U-D-A-K.com, and, um, and then look under articles. Okay. Well, terrific. And, and I, you'll find it. Yeah. yeah and you'll, yeah. you'll find it. It's just it's, They're all listed uh, by name. And, um, and I have it there as both a web page and as a downloadable PDF document. Terrific. So, okay. Yeah. Well, uh, it blew my mind, and I think that people listening to this program will will find these uh, mind-blowing uh, climate change revelations uh, exactly that. Just just mind-blowing the the extent, uh, the impact of animal agriculture on uh, on the climate and environment. And uh, as mm. you said, th this is even just a small a small slice of the total impact and it's it's incredible in big numbers that are just mind-boggling so thank you for uh, for doing the work and staying on top of it and uh, we really appreciate your uh, being with us again today okay I appreciate the opportunity to be with you Bob thank you so much Mike Kudak that's Mike H-U-D-A-K.com and you can find uh, uh, these as uh, wonderful resources there thank you Mike 
We will continue on Go Vegan Radio with Bob Linden at GoVeganRadio.com. You get a perspective on the environment on this program that you get nowhere else, and we invite you to support our program with a tax-deductible donation at GoVeganRadio.com. You can also become a subscriber via Patreon and support us that way. And uh, we will continue. Uh, again, it's Go Vegan Radio with Bob Linden on Twitter at Go Vegan Radio, Facebook, Go Vegan Radio with Bob Linden. And don't forget now we have Radio Bobby, the 24-7 music radio station uh, that I really think you'll, you'll enjoy. And you can find that at RadioBobby.com. We have an app for that coming soon. And we have Facebook and Twitter pages for Radio Bobby also.
Radio with Bob Linden at GoVeganRadio.com. On Facebook, Go Vegan Radio with Bob Linden. Twitter at Go Vegan Radio. And we have our new 24-7, awesomely amazing, fantastic music station, Radio Bobby, Radio B-O-B-B-Y.com. Check it out. I think you will love it. Uh, I am somewhat addicted myself. It just... Uh, I don't know. It's just uh, such a such a fine radio station. Just such a good feeling, you know. You, you just check it out. I really think you'll be singing and dancing, and uh, you know, it'll really make a positive, happy contribution to your life. Radio b o b b y dot com. Uh, my thanks to uh, Mike Hudak. Did I deliver on the mind-blowing climate change revelations? Your mind is currently blown, correct? Daisy's here sleeping next to me, snoring. She is the love of my life, the the vegan love of my life. Daisy loves uh, evolution, vegan dog and cat food. Yes, she does. Uh, And everyone in your family can go vegan now, dogs and cats included. Um... Happily vegan. Daisy loves her evolution. Um, And you get none of the horrible ingredients found in commercial dog and cat food. Evolution has been around now for almost 30 years with no recalls, no product recalls. Um, And you get a 25% discount on dry food for new customers who call 800-659-0104. If you call the first Wednesday of any month, you get 20% off dry food, 10% off canned food, and uh, that phone number again is 800-659-0104. The website is petfoodshop.com. Petfoodshop.com. Oh, I found the phone number I wanted to give to you regarding Health IQ. Health IQ, the life insurance agency that offers special low rates for vegans. That's right. Your your good behavior gets rewarded now um, with uh, special rates from Health IQ. Um, you can go to healthiq.com slash GVR, as in Go Vegan Radio, or call 800-549-1664 and use the code GVR when speaking to somebody there. So we get credit, and uh, Health IQ is happy to sponsor us, and uh, we can pay some bills around here. Uh, you can help us pay some bills, too, if you want to make a donation. Um seems like there are expenses every month in doing this um, and uh, we have uh, no real corporate sponsorship uh, we had no matching funds you know when when everybody was trying to you know make uh, try to get those last minute donations at the end of the year and people were saying oh we get triple matching funds we get double matching funds well go vegan radio gets no matching funds so you're money is like your donation is so much more important to us uh, because nobody's matching it 
Visit possumswelcome.org to learn about an animal sanctuary in the making. This nonprofit is seeking coastal land for a farm animal sanctuary with the vision including a vegan cafe, a five-room bed and breakfast, weekly seminars on being vegan, veganic farming and cooking and yoga, and you can help make the dream come true by visiting possumswelcome.org or email christine at possumswelcome.org. And if you want to support a hot and sexy vegan fashion line, go to sonusdenim.com. Sonusdenim.com, that's strawberry, onion, nut, apple, strawberry. S-O-N-A-S-D-E-N-I-M dot com. Jeans are uniquely made with 50 patches of denim here in sunny, smoky, um, drought-ridden California. Um, Great-looking, great-feeling denim for men and women. Yoga pants, yoga pants too. Sonusdenim.com And, um, you know, I just... Uh, so sad to to hear of the passing of Colin Walkton, a friend for many years in Los Angeles, and um, I was a great he, he was a great vegan activist, such great concern for animals and for peace against war. We spent uh, so many so many hours marching together, and actually, some years ago, I did a thirty day juice fast. And Colin provided the fresh organic juice on a daily basis. So uh, this weekend, in his memory, I am fasting. Uh, Colin Walkton will certainly be missed. Uh, well, he's already missed. Uh, a lot of people are expressing sorrow over losing him. And the memorial ceremony is this weekend. So I am fasting in his honor Thanks for everything, Colin. And that will do it uh, for uh, Go Vegan Radio with Bob Linden this week. Again, uh, please support the program with a tax-deductible donation at GoVeganRadio.com.